This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the Today, we're bringing back another series. Yeah. From the mists of 2021. <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah, I guess there's no real rule that you can't start like a million other series like before you finish one, but you know, we had almost completed this. Uh, we almost got there. Yeah. And um, I thought, yeah, let's just conclude this <laughs> while we can. Uh, I, for one, kind of like that our, our series are unfurling in this kind yeah, of like exactly. spiral you never of know. interlocks. What a, yeah, what a pleasant surprise to find out that, yeah, you, there's no uh, there's no schedule by which you can really expect uh, another installment. Yeah, just so, leaning into both of our ADHD Hopefully. tendencies uh, yeah. to just, like, jump on the shiny object that is mm-hmm. in front of us uh, in the moment. And this this carousel of series keeps spinning around. <laughs> and, yeah, um, right. <laughs> Or like the Zodiac Wheel of Death, you know, by yeah. water, by rope. Uh, mm-hmm. Today is <laughs> by Gustavus Myers. Yes. Because we are, we're going to close out the The Gustavus Myers Wheel will be like by usury, by fraud, by bribery. <laughs> by <laughs> deceit, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, exactly. Um. So we're, we're bringing back uh, Gustavus Myers' colossal trilogy from circa 1910 the history of the great american fortunes which uh we've you know had three volumes and we've covered the first two at length and you know i I think we just had to close it out and then also i think this might (laughs) be split into two episodes yeah Uh, we'll see how long it goes but also we decided to tack on his kind of final postscript book though it's not an official volume which is uh what is it the decline the ending of the hereditary the american e- fortunes the yeah. ending of hereditary american fortunes from 1939 yeah. which was published 3 years before his death in 1942 yeah. mm-hmm. so much later than he published this uh, much later and yeah. it's a it's a good thing overall that he managed to write this final book because as we'll see today there are some tantalizing threads that get left sort of unfinished in mm-hmm. volume three of history of the great American fortunes. And, um, you know, just to, so people don't 
listen for, uh, I don't know, five hours and then get let down. You know, mm-hmm. the uh, the big elephant in the room that kind of doesn't get the full Gustavus Myers, you know, fire flame treatment is John D. Rockefeller and Standard Oil. And then also his uh, sometimes compadre, E.H. Harriman, the railroad tycoon, and kind of the people associated in their orbit in like the early 20th century. I mean, they, they had already grown to be quite powerful by 1910, and he references them a lot, but he always says something like, oh, but like their crimes are like too well known to, for me to like waste, you know, space here. Or he says <laughs> at the very end, like a full, you know, dissection of these groups of like Standard Oil and Harriman are going to have to wait for a future volume, which unfortunately never materialized. So we're left with like a little bit of an incomplete picture of the entire uh, American plutocracy circa like 1910. It also happened, it's interesting that it came out like right right at kind of a, t- a big turning point um, in global politics and the economy and everything else. I mean, first of all, one of his most, one of the people he profiles the most J.P. Morgan, I think, died in 1913. And then, of course, World War I commenced in 1914. And also, the Federal Reserve was established, right? Yeah. I think in either 1912 or 1913. Uh, Federal Reserve established. I'm not exactly sure. Yeah, it was 1913. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which, you know, I think uh, it kind of changes up a little bit. Like, a lot of the stuff he talks about in volume three here, you know, he makes constant references to sort of the printing of money that banks engaged in, Mm -hmm. you know, promissory notes and things like that um, throughout the 19th century. And it's easy to forget that before the federal reserve, that there wasn't like a government entity that just printed like one type of official U S government backed currency that's what the uh, the Greenback Party was all about, agitating mm-hmm. for, right? In the late yeah. 1800s, right? Um, There's a lot of like interesting stuff that like happened like in the course. I mean, over the course of the long period of time covered by both these books, like a lot of things, like. There's a whole chapter, uh, I guess, in the ending of the Hereditary American Fortunes about, like, the direct election of senators and how, oh, yeah, like, yeah, that, that was, was like, really a huge thing to, like, achieve, as well, well as he just, called like, it like right... a blood. He called it, like, a bloodless revolution. He was actually quite optimistic about it. And, yeah. I mean, I think maybe a little too optimistic, looking at how the Senate looks today, where I think, yeah, like, was, four, he... like, 99 of them are millionaires, at least. Yeah, right? he was too optimistic, but, it, you know, it's crazy, like, how recently that was changed changed like something that you kind of like are are prone to forget like maybe if you think about it like yeah okay like when the uh american system of government was first designed you know the u.s system of government was first designed yeah like you would think like oh right yes senators were appointed by state legislatures but like you kind of when you're thinking about the present day you sort of forget like how recently it was that that actually changed to the system that we have now that was Uh, also 1913 kind of fittingly coinciding with jp morgan's death and like, yeah, I mean, I remember like learning that in like AP history class, like, oh, wow, the 16th Amendment, like direct election of senators. Isn't that nice? And it kind of seemed like a cool, like progressive era just thing. But I guess him kind of writing um, even in the 1930s was saying like this was a monumental struggle that took like decades, basically. And the only reason it was kind of 
push through ultimately is because the the plutocrats couldn't stop it anymore. Like it was a concession they basically had to give. And this is also the period of the ascendancy where I think like the Socialist Party of the U.S. Uh, yeah. doubled their election uh, results in mm-hmm. from 1908 to 1912. You had Theodore Roosevelt, who gets shit on a lot <laughs> yeah. in, in uh, volume three. But nonetheless, uh, I think he, he maybe moderated to both the Roosevelts uh, by yeah. the 30s. And he talks a little bit about the Bull Moose Party and the kind of uh, the prairie populists, if you will, mm-hmm. that were pushing for things like graduated income tax and direct election of senators. He doesn't really mention a lot the enfranchisement of women, but that's another thing that's like incredibly recent when you really think about it. Like yeah, the, the true. 1920, you know, and I guess, a you lot know, of- it is interesting how like many of these, you know, he goes into like the multimillionaire families and things like that, you know, and I, I don't know, maybe... In a way, like, it seems like uh, wealthy women, like, often, like, were, even before, like, formal suffrage, formal political enfranchisement, like, you know, even, like, the children of these people had, like, you know, uh, like, omnipotent levels of wealth. But, yeah, just uh, for the record, I think it was the 17th Amendment, that's the recollection of senators, and the 16th was, yeah, the 6th, well, he does talk about the 16th, which was, like, a federal income tax, which before, like, was ruled unconstitutional, actually. Uh, for there to be a federal income tax. And that was like a That's big battle right. as well. Yeah, yeah he d- talks about that too, because nowadays we just think about it as like, oh, and to the extent you ever even hear people talk about the income tax, it's often in this kind of like libertarian, like von Mises kind of way, but like, did you know the Federal Reserve <laughs> like instituted an income tax and like we didn't even have one? I remember that was like a Ron Paul talking point. No. Thing, like people who liked Ron Paul used to say that like you know, 10, 15 years ago of like, did you know that like for most American history, we didn't have an income tax. And it's like, well, yeah, because all the wealthiest people like didn't want one. <laughs> like yeah, exactly. fiercely resisted it at every <laughs> turn. And even the Supreme Court like struck down them. I didn't realize there was one before yeah. that mm-hmm. passed in 1913 that right. I think got it got struck down, I want to say in the 1880 in ni- 1895. Mm-hmm. The Supreme Court struck down the income tax that I think was uh was passed. I forget it was maybe it was in the what was it the they tried case in the 1870s uh, I'm trying to remember what the court case was Pollock I called it the Pollock but the Pollock Pollock oh. versus Farmers Loan Trust Company yeah gotcha gotcha yeah well yeah so I mean there were a lot of eventually there were these progressive era kind of upheavals that did change things and but as we see i mean they they push the ball forward for the common people to some extent but when we look at where we are today it's a little yeah like especially reading him writing it like the zenith of the new deal era where he feels like finally yeah he kind of ends on an optimistic note which is like all the more like ironic and sad in a way well Maybe we should just get into it. Yeah, let's and do it. see because we learn a lot of we we learn a lot of things about the particular. And we start. What's interesting about both of these vol- volumes or books is we get more names now that are household names that you recognize that are still the names of institutions that you know that are colleges and hospitals and philanthropies and all these other things. And we really see the formation of the rationalized industrial system, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. By the end of it, 
but he really charts like how did this exactly go because we in the in volume two previously on uh hot gaff two <laughs> he talked a lot about vanderbilt right yeah and uh and jay gould right these were jay two gould, yeah who continues to oh. appear in this for a bit uh he does he does yeah, he dies yeah. he dies pretty early on um he does and his but his fortune does live on mm-hmm. like a an unholy entity but then there's like a new class of of robber baron of criminal capitalist in town and then he gets into basically what jp morgan kind of spearheaded and how that transformed the nature of the capitalist system going into the dawn of the 20th century but he starts he starts with a kind of in in volume 3 he starts by profiling a somewhat obscure individual, somebody who's not a household name. Yeah, Russell the Sage. venerable right. Russell Sage, yeah. which I think that that name still does ring a bell to me. I forget what it's. I think there is there like a Russell Sage kind of foundation or something like there that. There might be a oh, Russell Sage College. Oh, there is a Russell Sage Foundation. Yeah, yeah. So he he still has names like plastered kind of everywhere yeah russell sage foundation yeah where is russell russell sage college this is in uh wow uh, it's a college oh, it's for in New York. women actually um interesting yeah he talks a lot about how like these people like oh often i think he we even touched on this in an earlier episode on hot gaff one or two how like often at the end of their lives they then just uh pour all their money into like philanthropy in like a very superficial yep. sense and then Absolutely. that helps them to be like made over as like these great humanitarians, even though all they did was like hoard wealth illegitimately their entire lives and like, uh, you know, steal and uh, defraud people. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. It's Absolutely. A, that is a theme that rings very strongly throughout yeah. this volume. I think, you know, he went back to basically, I forget the exact Boston merchant around the time of the American Revolution who was the first one to do that, who was like an absolute like miser in his lifetime who cared nothing for like the poor or the paupers or anything else and hoarded all of his wealth. But then like shockingly when he died, his will, you know, established like a hospital and like all these charities and suddenly his reputation just, you know, basically flipped overnight and like every other rich person noticed. And so from then on, it became very, um, very common, almost expected if you had swindled yourself a very large fortune you had to kind of reinvest it in a very symbolic kind of way and i mean this really was elevated to like an art form to the point where some of the names that pop up in this volume are still like on they're still the names that you you'd mostly recognize them from the names of like museums today right Mm -hmm. yeah you know a lot of them really tried to hold on to their like art collections there's a very interesting sort of uh, digression about art galleries. I mean, it's not really a digression, but it's like maybe a sub theme about like art galleries and art patronage in the ending of the heredi- of hereditary American fortunes about kind of how uh, you know the sort of uh, art market and the the way that you know the collection of these paintings and the sort of style the way that people style themselves as patrons of art. Um, yeah, and uh, mm-hmm. then sort of over time maybe they like begrudgingly give up their uh you know their vast collections to museums that then have their names plastered on on the wings or or whatever um yes exactly exactly 
it's a big deal for these people. I mean, the, the purchasing of social capital basically becomes a huge preoccupation with this class as we like move into the Gilded Age. I think he mentioned in previous volumes the intermarriage with European landed gentry mm-hmm. and, you know, counts and dukes and princes and princesses. And like so many of them did that. It's almost staggering. Yeah. Or the other thing they did, which I think, I feel like almost all of these top robber baron capitalists did one of two things, which is like have their children marry European royals who like had credentials, uh, but usually not a lot of money, or they would marry into the original, like the first families, like the original blue bloods. And that was also in a way because they had pretensions, you know, in their lineage of being, you know, patroons or Mm -hmm. being almost as good as lords and all that stuff. And, but then a lot of times as uh, Gustavus Myers, like noted in previous volumes, the, the formal landed estates and things like that were basically uh, gradually abolished throughout the early 19th century. And um, he gets more into it in the beginning of, the hereditary fortunes book about, you know, he reiterates basically how, you know, uh, like the Van Rensselaers and people like that were able to kind of like hold on to their huge holdings of like farmland and, and different, you know, production facilities and stuff like that, maybe into the 1830s and forties, but eventually laws were passed in all the legislatures that, um, I mean, it really stemmed from the abolition of primogeniture around the time of the revolution, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and so, uh, which a lot of the old families, like, absolutely hated. Uh, the And a lot of them were kind of Tory sympathizers, yeah. incidentally. And then, but then, of course, like, they were able to, a lot of those families, that's why their names still carry weight today, is because they were able to basically stay at the top but usually that was through marrying up and coming kind of more like Daniel Plainview types, <laughs> you know, uh, people like an Aster who was basically like a psychopathic, defrauding, kind of hard driving merchant who really had like no pretense or Cornelius Vanderbilt for that matter. It was like a very uncouth, uncultured, hard driving accumulator of wealth. And that was kind of like their chief and sometimes it seems like their only characteristic was just their drive for like power, wealth and control. So then they have a need to, for both their business purposes and the longevity of their, their empires to basically gain some social clout. So then you have that basically happening as well, where you have, I think one of the Morgans, I was looking at like who the Morgan children married and like one of them married a direct descendant of John Adams <laughs> and like another one married like a European like countess. One and then, Gould's, you know, uh, I think his daughter, right? Yeah. Uh, this is actually pretty early yeah. in Hodcap 3. He talks about Anna Gould in, in 1895, the same year that uh, the, uh, the income tax was struck down by the Supreme Court. She married uh, a uh, the Prince de Sagon. Oh no, that's a sorry. That she married the Count, the Count de Castellan, and she became mm. the Countess de Castellan. And that's also interesting to think about, even to this day, that like the descendant, to the extent that they're still players in kind of the world of either like finance or politics, 
that that's often not advertised that, oh, if you're a Morgan or if you're a Gould or something like that, you're not just descended from Morgan or Gould, but along the way, like every generation since then has been intermarried with like European aristocrats and shit. Yeah. So if we wonder why maybe people of this like upper, upper high class, maybe we're so flirtatious with things like eugenics or like Nazism, (laughs) you know? Yeah, well, it's like like a symbiotic relationship because, I mean, in the instance of the ghouls, I mean, as Myers points out, I mean, he does that kind of thing where he says like he died like hated and despised and the most like uh, reviled man in America. But of course, he was no worse than any other capitalist, you know, but uh, that was the perception and it's kind of, yeah, it's a symbiotic thing where, like, his children had all this money, but everyone hated them and hated their yeah. family. So, yeah, it works out where you can try to attach yourself to a system where no amount of popular hatred can, like, you know, disabuse you of your, like, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting that they're, you know, I mean, as we kind of see in the ending of Hereditary American Fortunes. I mean, they didn't really go away. Uh, I think Myers is a bit more optimistic about that, but several significant blows were dealt to them. They had reason to be concerned, so it makes sense that yeah. they, uh, you know, well, tried it, it's to good find to, ways to shore up what they had and totally and especially to a system. Yeah. Well, exactly, and yeah, and it's like, and this really is kind of the like strange hybrid American system of having, you know, an aristocratic class is like this strange hybrid of like to the manor born like titles and blah, blah, blah. But also the acquisitive, like hyper capitalist urge to like acquire wealth and control. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it, it, it's kind of particular, it's like this American mutant uh, kind of ruling class that has dominated. But at the same time, I think Myers does a pretty good job of pointing out that like, they don't just have kind of uncontested complete control and like nothing anybody does to counter them ever has any impact. Cause he does list along the way that there were a lot of provocations, most of which failed in the short term, but almost like they accumulated over time. You know, think about like the great railroad strike of 1877 and you know, the Pullman strike and like all these other, the Bethlehem steel strikes and which often ended with like the militia getting called in and like shooting or like Pinkerton's like shooting <laughs> a bunch of miners or something yeah. and not and them not winning, you know, what they were fighting for. But eventually you do get these like, you know, changes into the system. I mean, you could throw in the end of Chateau slavery, I guess, as well. Yeah. You know, it's like that that is a big qualitative difference, you know, from a system of enslaving people to like that's illegal now. You know, or like you could uh, have state legislatures, which he really (laughs) paints a good picture of just how fucking deeply corrupt like every legislature was. But they could just appoint a senator. And then we see some of these robber barons themselves are able to rig these state legislatures, often like out west or in the Midwest, and get themselves elected as senators. I think when we get into the uh, the Stanford Crocker era of California hmm. that Michael Aquino's grandmother came from, um, we see that like a kind of like, you know, a multi, a collaborative operation of four railroad tycoons, you know, where one of them was a senator, the other one was a governor, the other guy was running the business, and the other guy was like, you know what I mean? So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, there are all kinds of new tricks and tactics but but they do have the upper hand basically throughout the net like that that's kind of 
Gustavus Myers' main point is that there's kind of no point where these people were not manipulating our so-called democracy in the most brazen and wretched of ways. Yeah. Basically. And of course, you know, it all goes back, I think, to its core to the fraudulent theft of land and using the government, basically like bribing people in the government to allow people to accumulate like hundreds of thousands of acres of land, uh, mostly in the Midwest or out further West, you know, and in this volume, he basically shows how a lot of that had to do with the expansion of railroads. Mm -hmm. And so Russell Sage was one of these guys who got into the railroad business. And this is where he he starts out with, and he, you know, he, he lays out a pretty good litany of all of his, uh, uh, well, he's of course, just like everyone else he's profiled, he came to prominence by swindling his partners early on mm-hmm. and like stealing money from them <laughs> and getting yeah. away with it. Uh, I think that was Wheeler and Company. He started out as a grocer in Troy, New York. But then in the 1850s, he bought his way, he wiggled his way into control or to be one of the directors of the Troy and Schenectady, Schenectady fucking word. Railroad um, in upstate New York. And I'll just read a little from Gustavus Myers because this is another common theme with Mm -hmm. Gould and others. Uh, Sage's first move, it would appear, was to cause a steady mismanagement of the railroad's affairs so as to create dissatisfaction, if not disgust, with the continuance of public ownership and operations. So he got, that was it, with Troy and Schenectady, he got on the board and of this railroad that had been funded like many railroads by public money. Like this is money that basically, you know, city state and, uh, the federal government would give out because, Hey, you know, railroads, like they're, they're people, the common people perceive them to be this kind of essential infrastructure that would provide a broad based benefit to kind of everybody. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's nice. You know, I think that, It kind of makes sense. But then, you know, business and politics get involved. So as soon as he got control of this railroad that was, you know, technically owned by the public, he deliberately started to mismanage it (laughs) to make people disgusted with the continuance of public ownership and operation. Very deftly was his undermining and sapping work done, so deftly and by such surreptitious methods that no suspicion of his complicity was aroused. A public sentiment unfavorable to Troy's retention of the railroad was then adroitly worked up. Public petitions praying for the sale of the unprofitable and unsatisfactory road began to flow into the Common Council. So what did the Common Council do? It appointed a committee to consider the question of selling. Of this committee, Sage was the most active member. So active was he that the committee reported favoring the selling of the railroad. And he, I guess he cast the tie-breaking vote on the committee uh, that decided they would sell it. And then when they decided to sell it, who was it that bought it? A company headed by Sage. And Sage it was who became its president. Extraordinarily considerate were the terms of the sale. $50,000 was to be paid down, the remainder in 14 years. So that's another theme with all of these railroad people that they would do is they would get control of a company uh, that, like, had a railroad. And then they would do some fuckery to basically, like, drive down the volume, the, the value of it or throw it into chaos. And then they would convince everybody to sell it to a company that they controlled 
for kind of like a, a discount price or like pennies on the dollar. And then they'd sell it. And then they would turn around with their other company and then sell it to somebody else for like 20 times more than they paid for it. Yeah. And a lot of people built their original fortunes by just this trick of like buy it for one, sell no, it for yeah. two. Yeah. Like when I first, I remember reading the first couple of volumes, I was like, wow, that's outrageous. But now I'm just like, oh, just like every single other person that he talked about <laughs> did the exact <laughs> like they same all thing. fucking did yeah, this. Yeah. Just um, like, oh, yeah. Yeah. I guess yeah. it was just a matter of course for them because. Yeah, they all did that. The Jay Gould it, did the same thing. I remember clearly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then then he started getting involved with the New York Central Railroad, which I guess was going to be like it ended up being this like huge thing that all kinds of assholes were like getting in on, basically. Um, so he sold the Troy and Schenectady Railroad to the New York Central Railroad combination for nine hundred thousand dollars, Myers says, although but fifty thousand had been paid for it in cash, Sage and his associates disposed of it not only for the full value of its six hundred and fifty thousand dollar capital stock, but they also received in exchange a premium of twenty five percent on that amount in New York Central bonds. In this formation of the New York Central, eight million in bonds, all watered down, were distributed as a bonus among the owners of the various railroads embraced in the consolidation. No insignificant portion of the eight millions was Sage's share of the spoils. So that's another thing. Stock watering down the stock was like incredibly common with all these companies. And it was a way of like basically the owners to like cheat the price and pay themselves, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he uh, then he got elected to Congress <laughs> in 1854 yeah. after making uh, a ton of money. And Myers says about this era that this is the era when act after act was passed, granting money and land either openly or by indirection to railroad companies and giving corrupt powers and privileges of all miscellaneous kinds to other corporations and to individual capitalists. In the one year of 1856, exclusive of other years, Congress passed at least 30 railroad land grant acts for the benefit of as many separate railroad corporations acts under which these railroad companies obtained the ownership of tens of millions of acres of public land. The corrupt means used to get these acts through proved one of the great scandals of the times and led to the appointment of numerous congressional and state legislative investigating committees. Few members of Congress and legislatures there were, as was abundantly shown, who did not take bribes either in money or in stocks and bonds. So yeah, there was just like the entire uh, despoilization, just the entire corruption <laughs> of the Congress. Then he bribes the entire state of Wisconsin right. um, yeah. in I a think this section is called, called an entire the, state bribed yeah, or something. The, the bribing of an entire state, okay, um, yeah. which happens right after unrestrained fraud and bribery. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, he says here, quote, he was called the father of railroad construction companies in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Warble is a rhapsodizing writer, apparently <laughs> confident that the reference will redound to Sage's undying credit. What this eulogist prudently omits is an account of how these companies secure their charters and land grants. So he goes on to tell us about like the Minnesota and Northwestern railroad companies um, that did a bunch of fraud and bribery to get Congress to give it tons of land. Um, and uh, there were a ton of companies like this. And, you know, this is the same time he mentions that Vanderbilt was blackmailing two Pacific steamship lines out of $612,000 a year. Remember the uh, that mm-hmm. big scandal with, like, the mail ships? Right. Uh, Congress reeked with fraud and bribery, of which only slight oozings came to the surface. 
<laughs> and we incidentally get in passing along a, a lucid insight into the, some of the methods of the founders of great fortunes based upon manufacturing industries. Bribery, indeed, was so undeniably rife that as a sop to public feeling, one investigating committee after another was appointed to inquire into charges. So, yeah, he goes on. He talks about William W. Corcoran, a Washington banker. Yeah. You know, during the decades when Gould and Sage were being hotly denounced for their frauds, Corcoran loomed as a loomed up as a staid conservative banker and a man of accredited most honorable past. He was chief partner of the banking firm of Corcoran and Riggs, interesting, and bequeathed two million for a splendid art gallery to the city of Washington. And he also established a home for decrepit old women. Um, also Riggs, I'm pretty sure that Riggs is the same Riggs as today's Riggs Bank, which I forget if they were deliberately, they're actually not around anymore. Mm. Um, after the exposure of several money laundering scandals in 2005, they were acquired by PNC Financial Services. But that was a bank that many people have talked about in their books uh, that was another kind of like first American bank shares was basically like a CIA bank that a bunch of like sketchballs like Pinochet and others um, had accounts in, you know, during the Cold War. So, hmm. yeah, George Washington Riggs yeah. was the uh, founder with... Uh, oh, uh, so I guess actually Corcoran and Riggs... Yeah, no, Corcoran and Riggs is Riggs Bank. So this is like the CIA money laundering bank, basically, um, of the 20th century, was uh, was hmm. very active in the 1850s doing all kinds of bullshit. So I think what they did is they did, they did a bunch of fraud related to the Mexican War. And there were like payments that needed to be settled between the government of Mexico and I guess certain Americans and or or from the U.S. government uh, itself. But I think what they did is they inserted themselves as middlemen and charged like a huge premium for like a completely unnecessary service that nobody needed, uh, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and they bribed their way to be given this esteemed job to like be the financial brokers between the U.S. and Mexico. Um, so that's pretty cool. The, so I guess right. they've, they've always had an international profile. Yeah, and that was the result of the uh, Hidalgo-Guadalupe. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the Treaty of Guadalupe-Hidalgo uh, yeah. uh, was mm -hmm. what they were kind of involved in settling. So, yeah, they did yeah. that. and Right, they had to pay out. What was the stipulation? They had to pay out, like, certain amounts. Uh, I'm trying to look uh, here. The United States had to pay $15 million to Mexico or pay off the claims of American citizens against Mexico up to $5 million. Oh, yeah, and then they ruined um, this guy Gardner, who then um, committed suicide. <laughs> That's another really common thing. Is like They just like ruin other people who then kill themselves very extravagantly. Yeah, uh, that is definitely... Yeah, they were forging thing. affidavits um, and stuff. Yeah, the great swindle. Yeah, Mexico needed money badly and proposed the United States to pay it directly to the Mexican government without the intermediary of banking houses. Um, Green charged that uh, Corcoran bribed Thomas H. Bailey, chairman of the House Committee on Ways and Means, so to misrepresent Mexico's proposition and manipulate matters that the firm of Corcoran and Riggs should be made the middlemen mm -hmm. of the transaction. Bailey charged Green held a control over the appropriation bills, in most of which Corcoran was directly or indirectly interested. 
Corcoran thus obtained the handling of the indemnity funds and made a profit of about half a million dollars from the transaction. It's a lot back then, damn. And a select committee of the House of Representatives made a show of investigating the charges against Bailey and reported on August 3rd, 1854, uh, a case of not proved. Yeah, and then the, he talks about the Gardner swindle. Yeah, yeah, and then and then Gardner ended up kind of being like the fall guy for it, and then he killed himself uh, while being indicted for perjury. Right. Yeah. So that's that's wonderful. <laughs> um, so and nobody else was punished, of course. Um, and the committee that, exoneratingly like, whitewashed Corcoran. It's amazing that he was able to make so much money over like just through like insinuating himself in between like what seems to be a fairly simple transaction it's amazing <laughs> like you like just a payment of money it's like no i need to manage this uh, it's literally like satanic like, it, is it provides yeah, it's, literally it's, no value it's literally parasitic it's the yeah it's the epitome of of usury <laughs> like uh, he's not <laughs> wrong to describe it as such um yeah. yeah so i'm like basic- trying to wrap my head even around like the mechanics by which like this is even possible like y- like he yeah he doesn't really properly describe like exactly how it fucking happens like how do you like just shave five hundred thousand dollars off the top of handling indemnity funds <laughs> like what i mean i think that's the thing when you're dealing with like big sums of money like this you know, uh, skimming a little off the top, it's not even skimming because you just add it to the balance or, you know, you claim fees or something like that. Yeah. You know, that that is kind of how they make their money off, like commissions for various transactions, like inserting themselves into, right. uh, yeah, various uh, economic exchanges. Yeah. And I guess they did use Gardner as a fall guy. So it's not like, they, they, I mean, they got away with it. But they did yeah. kind of, you know. Well, that's the thing that also, like, Myers notes later that, <laughs> that you know, there, like, if you really go back to the source material, there is not one decade of kind of American history <laughs> where there are not, like, really high-profile investigative committees that are formed that basically go into various scandals that are kind of made public to varying degrees. And almost invariably, like, the, the two main outcomes are either a total whitewash or a kind of patsy is zeroed in on and they get kind of the blame for everything but the yeah. bigger players escape and honestly usually it's like a, himself eventually yeah, kind of played that role yeah he kind of did he even though he was a relatively big dog he was like the one person of that class to kind of that everyone could focus their hatred and resentment on and kind of exonerate everybody else and that but they usually and th- honestly, reading about a lot of this stuff about the Patsies made me think about like Bernie Madoff or like Alan yeah. Stanford or other even right now at Silicon that, Valley, like Elizabeth that Holmes. That guy, everyone like was all, Yeah, exactly. Elizabeth Newman Holmes or that a, other guy. Uh, what was uh, Mar- uh, Martin Shrekley? Was that his name? The farm. Oh, yeah. The like the Martin Shkreli or whatever. Yeah. yeah it's mm-hmm. like these kind of guys that end up they do end up going like Elizabeth Holmes is going to go to prison for a while. Like yeah. she will be punished. She had mo- probably a lot of her money taken away. And stuff. Mm-hmm. And just like with her dad's company, Enron, like they, a few people, I think some people think Ken Lay faked his death and like ran mm-hmm. away. But like other people did get prosecuted for that, et cetera, et cetera. But like the real players behind Enron, no, they didn't get fucking punished. Like no. maybe the banks or the intelligence agencies behind Enron, et cetera. And so that's like a very common theme. But he does say that like, you know, it, it's almost weird after a while 
that if you really do read the content of these investigative committees, they are kind of like laying it out in the open how everything actually works. They're just not stamping it with like a Snopes thing of like confirmed corruption. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they they end up rationalizing it away or they're unable to basically bring the true culprits to justice. But if you look at actually like kind of the discovery of like what all these committees cough up, like a lot of it is quite brazen. And yeah, it's all just out there. Like like, this is the the story of capitalism. Like this is even its own. It's it's not even that crazy contradiction because it's the yeah. Speaking of like money laundering, it's yeah, it's amazing how like these like just bare facts of what actually happened are somehow laundered laundered into these hagiographical stories about these people like jp morgan like you know somehow they be are able to be like alchemized into these heroes when yeah everything is just like a matter of record but again you know they uh you know are completely above any kind of uh justice or or reckoning at all they're Um, great men yeah move the country forward etc etc um and uh, yeah and and also bribe the entire state of wisconsin um uh well something interesting about sage that stuck out to me uh yeah because i mean you're right he's like kind of uh compared to some of the people mentioned in the book he's a more marginal figure but it's interesting that he according to myers invented the put and call system yes i noticed that Uh, that i had no idea he did that either because that's so that's just the weather these days that we just assume that that was like always there but it was quite controversial at the time that he introduced it right yeah uh he like Gustavus Meyer said it's so complicated that he won't attempt to describe it (laughs) uh yeah but, but you know yeah, we've talked like, about like you know 9-11 strange trading before 9-11 mm-hmm. oh yeah, yeah he invented right. a special system of usury the put and call system <laughs> the intricacies <laughs> of which we shall not attempt to describe well yeah but that's basically yeah that's like buying that's like shorting a stock basically is kind of like the like that's the way that you short a stock is by yeah. puts and calls and things like that yeah like putting money on yeah, like you, right, exactly. Like pudding is when you think it's going to do well and calling is when you think it's going to suffer. But yeah. you're like not buying the stock itself. You're like investing in like a separate, I don't want to attempt to describe it either, but that's basically what it is. You're right? like, like lent uh, the stock at like the, at the price that you think it's going to be. And then like if it hits that price, then you get paid out kind of like the full amount like and the difference is your profit i always I, it, it's really it, it always hurts my brain to try to explain puts and calls but like yeah uh, they're like options yeah i guess they're options, they're options. it's options trading yeah. basically yeah they're put and call options so. yeah and i got it backwards the call is when you think it's going to go up and the put is when you think it's going to go down yeah see i never get it straight so like i didn't know that <laughs> you know what i mean this is um uh, yeah so so sage right. yeah he was you know he was just uh uh, inventing cool innovations on Wall Street and yes. buying up all these railroads um, under the section, quote, unparalleled acts of fraud and plunder. Um, it, it reported, uh, the Joint Legislative Committee of Wisconsin reported that for the passage of the Land Grant Act of 1856, $175,000 in bonds were distributed among 13 specified senators, the individual bribes of whom ranged from 10000 to $20,000, that $355,000 in bonds had been given in bribes to uh, to 70 specified assemblymen, an average bribe of 5000 each. 
that 50000 in bonds were given as a bribe to Coles Bashford, governor of Wisconsin, and 16000 to other state officials, and that 246000 had been variously paid out to certain specified editors and other persons of influence. The committee reported, this is actually interesting, maybe they, you'll know what I'm thinking of. The committee reported that the bribers used a secret written code in order to conceal the evidence of bribery. This code, however, hmm. was revealed. The committee commented, the bribery or, quote, buying up a great majority of the legislature of 1856 is discovered in the background as a tame fact, while the ingenuity displayed in the attempt to veil the transaction beyond the possibility of detection is so supremely unique as to extort attention. The actors seem not to have been mindful of the fact that no lid was ever large enough to completely cover up itself. So, you know, they're basically doing Pizzagate, but for, like, <laughs> corruption. You know, basically, like, right. can I get, like, 50,000 hot dogs before the vote? Like, <laughs> <laughs> I guess, you know, um, that was... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, this is also an interesting uh, footnote here, because this is how one way of how they did it, um, of buying up all this land corruptly. Of the corruption and fraud in the case of the Milwaukee and Superior Railroad Company, an investigating committee reported that many of the farmers in Milwaukee County and other parts of Wisconsin had mortgaged their farms in order to raise money for the purchase of railroad stocks. These farmers, quote, were anxious to aid in the construction of a road which they supposed would benefit themselves and the public generally. Many were Germans, quote, confiding, unsophisticated men. The committee continued... <laughs> A swarm of these vultures, known as stock agents, were sent out amongst the people, and as a result shows, from the evidence herewith, many poor and worthy men have been robbed of their all, and unless some relief is extended to them in some way, will soon be deprived of their houses, if said mortgages are of any legal effect. So, cool. They just, like, uh, robbed a bunch of German immigrants um, and yeah. made them lose their houses. I believe there was no uh, relief uh, coming their way. Uh, that's another theme that Myers points out a lot is that you know like these things like unemployment insurance and stuff like just did not exist you know until the 1930s right. so every time there was a panic which there basically was every like eight to ten years constantly yeah like millions right. of people would be unemployed and it was it was basically up to like religious charities to like keep them from starving to death and there was like no assistance from the government at all they didn't even send out you know checks like yeah and no assistance from the like you know the capitalist class either like none of these like great philanthropists actually did anything until they were dying when they went like to the great lengths to put their name on like a bunch of buildings exactly uh, exactly you know, like, yeah it's also worth noting that this guy uh sage that is also profiteered off of the civil war which he's is not alone theme. in doing yeah, right. it seems like most of them did do this. I mean, we talked about uh, Commodore Vanderbilt in the past episode. But uh, yeah, he uh, it's again, talks about Wisconsin and Minnesota. Uh, it, you know, was talking about his put and call system. Uh, now could be seen what he was doing with the millions that he was stealing in Wisconsin and Minnesota. Minnesota. Ordinarily, he would loan money at high enough rates, but in times of panic and Wall Street squeezes, again, you know, exploiting these constant panics that were created by the predations of these people themselves. Mm -hmm. So in times of panic, he demanded and received as much as 2% a day or 60% a month. Friends or enemies, it did not matter. All alike had to pay the enormous interest that he exacted if they desired a supply of ready money, which he always kept on hand and thus save themselves from defaulting on contracts and so going into bankruptcy. 
He was one of that eminent constellation of patriots who hoarded gold when it was most needed to carry on the Civil War and refused to loan it except at the most incredibly extortionate rates. Amazing patriot. Yes. Amazing yeah, patriot. great hero. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and he, I don't know if uh, you mentioned this, but he eventually like kind of teamed up with Jake. Yeah, Gould I was just going to get to that. Sort he, of friends. Um, yeah. yeah, it says uh, Sage had met Gould in Troy, New York and had removed to New York City. The two men, says the effusive biographer heretofore quoted, made an impression upon each other, which afterward deepened into a friendship famous in financial history. Famous or infamous, whichever way you prefer to view it. A valuable working pair the twain made. Sage, crafty, somber, and reclusive. Gould supplying the public audacity, both equal in inscrutable wiles and stratagems. The one overcautious, the other overreckless, each counterbalancing the other. A prodigious respect Gould learned to entertain for Sage. The one associate was Sage, whom Gould could not overreach or fleece. So subsequently and appropriately hmm. enough, Sage uh, hied himself to New York City early in the course of the Civil War. There in Wall Street was the headquarters of many of the railroad corporations, which had been and were bribing and plundering. The office of the Lacrosse and Milwaukee Railroad Company, for instance, was there. Whoever might be the actual physical builders of the railroads, the owners were either Wall Street men or kindred capitalists, men who by some species of fraud or theft had pushed themselves into control. And in all, and there also in New York was the scene of the greatest activity of the current widespread despoilation. From there radiated the plans and plots, which later resolved themselves into colossal swindles. Had the center of this deviltry <laughs> been elsewhere, their sage and all the others of the brood indubitably would have flown. <laughs> so yeah, so that's <laughs> when he started ri- like hoarding gold and like yeah. ripping off the it's government. It's all happening in New York. Yeah, it's all happening in New yeah, York. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, it is. It's, it's <laughs> um, uh, so, yeah, he was uh, seen as a wizard-like, wonderful financier, blah, blah, blah. Yes, his wizard-like abilities, his great magic. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is interesting. Um, One of the many corporations in which Sage became a large stockholder was the Pacific Mail Steamship Company that we talked about. That was uh, This corporation, as we have noted in the Vanderbilt chapters, long corrupted Congress to get predatory mail subsidies from the government. By an additional act passed by Congress in 1865, it received another heavy government subsidy for carrying the mails between San Francisco and Asia via Honolulu. The booty was so rich that different factions of capitalists continually fought one another to get control of the company's treasury. We find from lawsuit records that in 1867, that fine, old, massively respectable banking firm of Brown Brothers and Company was one of the heaviest stockholders. Its own name, in its own name, and acting for authorizing parties, it held seventy-seven thousand eight hundred thirty-nine shares of a total of two hundred thousand shares of Pacific Mail Steamship. Like the firm of Phelps Dodge and Company, the banking firm of Brown Brothers and Company was preeminently reputed, as it has been since, to be one of the quote old-fashioned firms of strict integrity. To be sure. It officially knew nothing of the subsidy bribing incessantly going on. Owners of enterprises must cultivate ignorance of such embarrassing details. Uh, so, yeah, he talks about how they're eminently respectable. This is the same Brown Brothers that become Brown Brothers Harriman, right? Where, mm-hmm. uh, wasn't it, yeah, Prescott Bush worked, right? And, yeah, they, they, they get involved uh, but... in kind of like JFK, like World War II, like collaborating with the Nazis, Um kind of shit i think the dulleses were also involved 
and Brown Brothers Harriman. Um, they're extremely sus, basically. They, they would go on to extreme suspense yes, uh, in the 20th mm-hmm, century, yeah. but I think they were still... How Bush's grandfather helped Hitler's rise to power, power is what I get if I search uh, Prescott Bush Harriman. Yes, exactly. Yeah, Brown Brothers. And then <laughs> yes, and Harriman, who also is somebody who gets a little bit of a short shrift in this uh, book, uh, was considered like a Standard Oil Rockefeller kind of man like an agent of the Rockefellers. So it seems very much mm-hmm. that like the kind of Bush, Harriman, that whole nexus was like aligned with uh, the Rockefeller empire basically. But anyways, mm-hmm. we'll get to them a little bit later. So yeah, the more Pacific steamship stuff. And then we kind of jump back to Gould since I guess they became very good friends. Yeah, this is like a swan song. It is. So I guess Sage um, and Gould... Yeah. Uh, Gould got controlling interest of the Union Pacific Railroad Company in 1873. And then uh, Sage also started buying Union Pacific stock in like 1868. And let's see. So then I I think they, uh, let's see. Yes, their most plastic and successful plan by which they were enabled to compound loot on a most magnificent scale was that of buying in as individuals various railroads and then selling them at exorbitant prices to the Union Pacific Railroad, which corporatively they controlled. It was a plan which, although theoretically regarded in law as fraudulent, was nevertheless audaciously carried on with complete immunity. So that that's what we mentioned earlier. Like, they basically would buy up as individuals. They would buy up... <laughs> these smaller railroad lines and then flip them to their own company at like a massive profit and, and just Mm -hmm. gobble up basically um, railroads that way. So with its extraordinary, this is a a great opportunity for fraud is the section (laughs) with its extraordinary (laughs) opportunities for self enrichment on a great scale. This plan was one commonly practiced by the puissant capitalists of the times It had not by any means originated with Gould and Sage. Other railroad capitalists had richly profited by it. So thoroughly has it commended itself as one of the simplest and most effective means of transferring wealth that a long succession of magnates have consecutively availed of it to this very day. Three generations of Vanderbilts have repeatedly demonstrated its value. Those illustrious generalissimos of the ranks of wealth, J. Pierpont Morgan and E. H. Harriman, have been two more of the radiant cluster who have proved its enduring worth. By this fraudulent process, incalculable sums of money mounting into the hundreds of millions have been seized with facility. Yeah, it's great. Um, so they just played that little like three card Monty trick. They just kept gobbling, gobbling. But he does say here, this is an interesting note that, you know, it kind of sounds like a very like a dispassionate Marxist kind of take. But Myers says, reduced to simple language, this plan is authoritative confirmation of the truism that none but the mighty rich have the means to engage in a great campaign of, the- of theft. Yet to focus attention upon the, th- the frauds of these particular capitalists without inquiring into the good work which at bottom they are doing would be grievously one-sided and misleading. Notwithstanding their prodigious frauds, Vanderbilt and Gould and all the other masterful capitalists were, without being conscious of it, performing a great evolutionary service of the highest importance. It was they who were among the leaders in consolidating and centralizing transportation and industrial utilities, in effacing the old wasteful competition and the warfare of the little capitalists, and in establishing an era of systematic, concentrated, private control. It was done despite statutory law and judicial decisions, in spite of every obstacle, for it had to be done. It was an inevitable stage of progress, proceeding further stages. In doing it, however, 
The great parents were prompted by selfish greed only. They fixed their own price, a colossal price, taxing the producer to pay whatever toll they demanded. So I don't know. That's an interesting. What do you think about that? That uh, yeah, objectively they became these sort of like agents of progress, even though by no means like uh, in a way that like should redound to their credit because <laughs> they were doing it extremely selfishly. Yeah. But nonetheless, what is his rationale for like how that is? that concentration of power is good uh just because it eventually like heightens the contradictions of capitalism and leads to i uh, maybe like an i mean I, th- like, I, I think maybe he's looking at it in the similar kind of it could be that or it could be maybe he's looking at it the way like maybe marx looked at the civil war which is that yes like the northern states in the union are bourgeois and like a lot of this war is being clamored by like industrialists and like you know merchants and bankers and stuff in the north but they are basically extinguishing a retrograde kind of a system of economic production chateau slavery that like needs to be wiped off the world stage so critical support for Lincoln. You know what I mean? But, uh, but yeah, that's th- th- one thing to say about slavery. The other thing to say about the Gilded Age. I mean, I don't know. I could almost see... I guess maybe what he's getting at is, you know, reading the passage here, he's saying that, like, the incentralizing, like, the utilities that could allow them to be, like, better managed, like, when owned by... When nationalized, for example. Uh, people. Yeah, exactly. Of course, when uh, we're still waiting yeah. for that to happen. But but exactly. it does make you think yeah, kind so, of like, well, eh. if you look at like the Soviet experience in the 1930s, I could almost imagine like a confident like Stalinist economist or something like giving a lecture that is like, now, of course, like notwithstanding their prodigious frauds and the fact that they're like evil vipers, Vanderbilt and Gould, like objectively provided, you know, this innovation that now we are going to take because we're in control of everything and we're going to build a rationalized system of like central planning, et cetera, et cetera. Like, would you have kind of 20th century, really any kind of central planning, but specifically like socialist central planning without the audacious kind of a criminal system that was set up by like JP Morgan? I don't know. I mean, did you have to get to that stage? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like the reaction to it or uh, the correction, so to speak. Yeah, I wonder. I almost feel that like this is something that I feel like we've talked about a bit before where Marx himself was pretty vague about like what communism would actually look like. Like sort of what we think of as like the orthodox Marxist theory of like, you know, communist economics and that type of stuff. Like, you know, that's all kind of post-Marx. So his actual vision of a communist society isn't like, you know, very uh, detailed. Sure. That's why so I'm jumping to like the I 1930s like ways, when people were concretely trying to build something on like, you know, socialist or Marxist principles, but using the same kind of centralization yeah, through and economic like, planning and things like that. And also through like revolution, which is not really something that Marx envisioned per se revolution or maybe he did but at like a point of like uh, a development that like you know would eventually be reached that would kind of like naturally happen like the idea of a revolution like you know that lenin undertook that wasn't like a strictly marxist vision 
Well, maybe not in the way that Lenin did it. Yeah, because Lenin theorized, no, built it, his own kind of theories atop Marxist theories and stuff. And other people, I guess, took it in other directions. The Kautsky. Yeah, I think that like the the Marxist, like the actual Marxist actual vision is a bit more teleological, where it's like kind of an inevitability. And that like type of communism that might emerge from just like allowing capitalism's contradictions to uh, become intensified and then develop into like something after capitalism or something post-capitalist, I feel like that might not be good, whatever it is. That form of communism might not be. The gradualized form? Yeah, the form that just kind of, you know, the idea that it sort of emerges in the sort of Hegelian way inevitably yeah. from well, the connections with capitalism I itself. I feel I like, know. at least in his earlier writings, I feel, I mean, I hate to, it's not definitely not my favorite Marx text to like uh, reference from, but like the Communist Manifesto. That, I mean, it is a highly polemical document that perhaps is not meant to be taken literally, mm-hmm. yeah. but it does make a pretty big call. <laughs> like It's like the contradictions will intensify until there is until it's ripe for some kind of revolution. And you're right that he was kind of vague about what exactly that was going to be. But, you know, I think he was also, he was very excited by things like the Paris Commune in like, you know, 1870 and mm-hmm. like later in his life. And then I think, I, I would say that the kind of gradualist thing was maybe some people glommed onto that later, like the Kautskyites, you know, like the social Democrats, or even, you know, one of our, emerging bugbears like the Fabian socialists in Britain who I think are very relevant to talk about Mm -hmm. because those in a lot of cases those were kind of members of the bourgeois class that around the turn of the century started to flirt with certain kind of socialistic ideas in but often in, in this kind of way of like kind of looking at what like JP Morgan was doing and thinking oh well that's the way of the future obviously is going to be rationalization. But then it's like you fast forward a couple of decades into that whole thing and you have like Aldous Huxley like coming up with his like, you know, transhumanist dystopia, you know, and like all this eugenic shit and et cetera, et cetera. It spins into like weird directions in the 20th century. So I think you're right to be a little bit like sussed out by like, oh, it just inevitably is going to like blossom into, I mean, that's what like, that's what Kautskyites have been saying for over a century that you know oh one day we'll like beat them beat him at the ballot box or something and we'll just like peacefully convert yeah all of these like monopolies into kind of like publicly owned utilities that's what people still say today and honestly i don't want to like knock on it too hard in terms of like that would probably be better than what we have <laughs> like in general i mean if you just nationalized like all of the biggest corporate conglomerates in america or something like I, I would be generally in support yes. of that. I, I think that's good. Now, is it, it well one? Well, it depends. Like, what you know, are those nationalized industries going to be actually responsible, or, or are actually going to be responsible to like the popular exactly. will? Like, are they, you know, or what kind of state is going to be yeah, owning yeah, them? Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, what actually is this? Like, you know, is the exactly is the communism that sort of naturally emerges from capitalism? Is that going to be like kind of a, you know, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy like type of vision, you know, like that, like that's something where I feel like, you know, we, there is like an orthodoxy around Marxism that developed like from Lenin and later thinkers, but in the actual just like kind of 
broad vision of the future in Marx. Like, I feel like it almost could look something like that. And yeah, you're right that uh, he did like discuss revolution, but it's weird. The, the Paris Commune is a good example where he almost didn't like, I feel like he didn't like, he was excited by it, but didn't fully co-sign it in certain ways. He had critiques. Yeah, yeah, he definitely had critiques. And he also, I felt, I feel like it was one of those things where it's like, you know, it's not quite there or something. It could be the basis for the future. Yeah. yeah. But not where, you know, it's not really well, I mean, ready and, and, but or the, something. The Leninist, know, the like, Leninist would is, say guess, Marx you know, was right. And then like 40 years, 40, 50 yeah. years later, it was ready. And then there was a version, there was the, like, you know, the, the Leningrad, the, the, the St. Petersburg commune or whatever, you know. And then that one actually did, given the circumstances and the maturation of the kind of movement uh, and everything, it was actually, it actually did succeed, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, without getting too gone on that um i mean it is interesting yeah and i think that to be fair part of mark's critique of the commune was that they weren't revolutionary enough or like aggressive enough in they tried to have a temporary autonomous uh, zone and then they eventually got they tried to occupy and then they got crushed eventually you know yes you you gotta go hard or go uh, home you come for the king you best not miss kind of thing (laughs) exactly they were they were too pacifistic well, yeah, in some ways. Which is, you know, ways, but, uh, the, yeah. uh, something, a mistake that uh, Satan himself, Vladimir Lenin, would not repeat. Uh, you know, um, he just had to, you know, the only way to win is to embrace being a bad guy and become Joker-fied. <laughs> um, I guess that's what that's what the bourgeois <laughs> right. press wants us to think. But we can maybe return to that uh, later when we start talking about J.P. Morgan. Because, and like the, because mm-hmm. we're still in the era of like primitive doggy dog competition in the early part of the Gilded Age, right? With these these railroads mm-hmm. just scamming and looting and bribing and all these other things. Myers mentions here the difference between stocks and bonds, which honestly it's like it's like I kind of know, but every time I hear people talking about bonds, I'm just like, oh yeah, bonds. But like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, like it is. Yeah. Maybe it's important to like state the difference because uh, bonds were a big way that these people scammed and paid themselves and bribed yeah. other people. So, just for any who don't know, um, Myers says, yeah, inasmuch as technical financial terms often present mystifying difficulties to the unaccustomed, a definition of stocks and bonds may not be. He may not here be out of place, the more appropriately so, since it will explain how the manipulators of railroad and other property constituted themselves both shareholders and creditors. If they desired a railroad to be on a paying basis, they, as stockholders, took its dividends. If it suited their ulterior purposes to bankrupt it, they, as bondholders, could foreclose and buy it back at a bargain price. In the phrase of the street, they could, quote, play both ends against the middle. Bonds and stocks, although both classed as capital, differ in certain salient respects. Bonds are certificates of indebtedness theoretically issued to those who have made loans to a corporation and can be effaced upon payment of the principal. Stocks, on the other hand, are certificates of ownership theoretically issued to investors. By their nature, they are in law perpetual. In brief, then, the stockholders are the owners of a corporation, the bondholders its creditors. So, yeah, so by by owning like the debt certificates of various corporations, you could do all kinds of powerful shit. You could bankrupt the corporation, you know, you could uh, you could do all kinds of wonderful manipulations. Oh, here's the other thing. 
There was something called the Huntington letter scandal. I think we might have talked about this a little bit. I don't know if we talked about Huntington before, Hmm. but this is kind of uh, just after a section called Vast Areas of Coal Fields Stolen because I guess like Gould got so much land for the Union Pacific. Myers says the resources expropriated by Gould and, and by his descendants cannot be expressed in money terms. For example, the enormous coal deposits expropriated from the people, who can say what their exact money value is? The Interstate Commerce Commission announces that practically the entire coal supply of Oklahoma, Utah, and Wyoming is owned and monopolized by the Gould Railway System, principally by the Denver and Rio Grande Railroad, which was one of a number of Western Railroad lines that Gould held onto and bequeathed to his children. Behind the thin formalities of obtaining these lands... Uh, lay a long path of fraud, perjury, and violence. Uh, according to the Interstate Commerce Commission's report of 1908, they described how for 40 years or more, Gould and other railroad corporations have employed dummy occupiers, mainly women, to file fictitious entries on public coal lands and then have had the claims transferred. An inexpensive method it has been. Ridiculously easy to get much for little. The dummy occupiers were paid $50 or 100 each to do their fraudulent work. Um, and if a coal or oil deposit could not be obtained by fraud, then if the numerous testimony taken by the Interstate Commerce Commission is correct, force was used to oust such individual occupants as had lawfully acquired the land. So they'd like send in agents to like kill people, basically, <laughs> um, if uh, yeah. you didn't give up your land to Gould. So like literally terrorism and theft, um, which is really cool. Um, and let's see. Okay. Yeah. The Huntington letters scandal is kind of interesting. Um, these were the letters of Collis P. Huntington, a railroad magnate, one of the California four, uh, railroad bosses. So he had these letters written in 1876 through 1878. Um, a furious competition and corruption was in progress at Washington and Huntington wrote unreservedly of it. So, I guess there was a there was a scandal that resembled the credit mobilier scandal uh, swindle, which I feel like he doesn't talk about it. He references it constantly. Maybe he thinks it's like so notorious that everybody knows what it is at that time. Hmm. But that was a big deal. Right. That was like European, like a French bank got ripped off for Mm -hmm. like financing all these railroads. And it was all kinds of bullshit. Um, So I guess Huntington likes like somehow these letters got leaked and it spilled all of these like you know, basically huge, just like double dealing, fraud, blah, blah, blah. Um, Vanderbilt gets blackmailed and outgeneraled. Um, okay, this is actually, uh, this is interesting here. This is a company I'd actually like to look more into one day. It doesn't get talked about a lot, but it's very important. So in, lo- in looking about for new properties to add to their possessions, Gould and Sage, when sacking the Union Pacific Railroad, decided that the Western Union Telegraph System should be theirs. Any other set of capitalists would have hesitated long before venturing such a plan. For that company, the strongest of all the telegraph companies, was controlled by William H. Vanderbilt, the richest capitalist in the U.S. Gould and Sage were not at all deterred by the prospect. They had a plan by which they could force out Vanderbilt. It was none other than the species of blackmailing scheme, which they had used to coerce the Kansas Pacific directors, a scheme which Vanderbilt himself had employed and which competing capitalists had used against him. This oft-used scheme of the day was the very simple one of building a competitive telegraph line. 
Again, Gould came forward the posture of being a, quote, antagonist to monopolies. Hmm, does this sound familiar? Yeah. Um, a hotshot billionaire who's suddenly a free speech warrior standing up against the woke... Mm, the (laughs) the elites yeah there's a lot of like elon musk fucking synchronicities with a lot of these assholes like it truly yeah it's interesting Um, elon musk is a weird yeah he he supervenes on this whole world interestingly uh i mean he's certainly not like a hereditary american millionaire Uh, wait no 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 no, no. hold up hold up Let's not repeat the man's uh, Wikipedia bio here. Um, he actually is, if you really want to get down to it, his family owned an emerald mine in Africa. Yeah, but that's not America. Well, actually. That's South Africa. Well, yeah. actually. Oh. He's not he actually. Have? That's a weird thing about Elon Musk. He's not actually South African. Like oh, really? Generation intergenera- intergenerationally South African. No, mm-hmm. he actually his his family roots are in America and Canada. Hmm. So yeah, look, Elon Reeve Musk was born in Pretoria, South Africa. His mother is May Musk, nay Haldeman, a model and dietitian born in Saskatchewan, but raised in South Africa. And his father is Errol Musk, a white South African electromechanical engineer, pilot, sailor, consultant, and property developer um, who was once a half owner of a Zambian emerald mine near Lake Tanganyika. Okay, so maybe he's half he's half South African, but his yeah, mother's side is basically American and, and or Canadian. And it's interesting that his uh, he has British and Pennsylvania Dutch ancestry, according exactly. to this. Exactly, so you know something. what I'm saying? Yeah, they, mm, mm. you know, I'm just saying. Uh, just yeah, like how Bill Gates' grandfather was like a, a banking titan of like the Pacific Northwest. So, okay, yeah. So she, hmm. oh, Yeah, but he's not like a direct heir to one of these families, but he well, does kind of fit up. the paradigm in some ways. Hold up. Yeah. We just solved a mystery. I don't know how we didn't notice this before, but, you know, we've talked before about why his name is Elon and how it's a little right, eerie yeah. that uh, Werner von Braun's like Mars yeah right book like talked about how the governors of the mars colony would be called elons mm-hmm. and stuff like that um you know not not discounting that uh, some kind of connection but actually uh, it says here that his mother named elon after her american grandfather john elon haldeman who was born in illinois mm. so he so he is basically um like part American through his grandfather's side. And then I guess his grandmother was Canadian yeah, and that mother be, was Canadian. Maybe that's his Pennsylvania Dutch ancestry. It sounds like it. It, it probably is. Yeah. No, he was uh, born in uh, what? 1871 or well, no, you can find his uh, genealogy. Um, I don't know if the Haldemans like popped up. As yeah. I mean, it would really be interesting. Notable. Uh, yeah, he was born in Minnesota, which uh, was a real hotbed of corruption, according to Gustavus Myers. <laughs> yes. Yeah, son of John Elon Haldeman. Uh, there's not really much information about him. Um, he was around, he was born in 1871, so he was like around uh, in the Gilded Age. But anyways, just the idea yeah. of like this guy who's like, uh, and actually that'll come up soon. Um, hold on. Just to finish this thought here about Gould and Sage trying to 
get the Western Union Telegraph Company. It's really like the, the Twitter of their day. But Vanderbilt, William H. Vanderbilt owned it. So anyways, Gould came forward being the posture of an antagonist of monopolies. Sweetly did he discourse on the necessity of complete competition. It was at this time that Senator Vest minted his trenchant comment upon the professions of the money seekers, quote, when they speak, they lie. When they are silent, they are stealing. <laughs> That's a great, great quote. Um, <clears throat> so along the line of the Union Pacific and of their other railroads, Gould and Sage ordered the construction of a telegraph line with a fixed purpose of compelling Vanderbilt either to buy or sell. So seriously was the business the Western Union Telegraph Company cut in upon that in self-protection, it was finally forced to buy Gould's competing line for about, it was understood, $10 million. Having pocketed this large sum wrenched from Vanderbilt and his associates, Gould then plunged in and took away their entire telegraph system. By every trick and art of stock exchange speculative methods, Gould forced down the price of Western Union stock and gradually bought in quantities. To Vanderbilt's complete surprise and extreme mortification, Gould turned up in 1881 not only with the control of the Western Union, but also of the American Union Telegraph Company, which he had sold to Vanderbilt but a short time previously. Upon obtaining control of Western Union, Gould immediately increased its stock and kept on increasing it. Triumphant, gorged with spoils and power, Gould did not have to court the support of all that was considered solid and respectable among the money aristocracy. They knew him to be a great thief, and he knew their caliber, despite the exterior they had woven about themselves. The instinct of kind for kind is unerring, which instinct in a money world is reinforced by that invariable principle of action whereby wealth seekers rally around him who proves his supreme ability to get away with the plunder. The vanquished are expeditiously deserted. The successful flocked about. Such fellow kings of wealth, such as John Jacob Astor, J. Pierpont Morgan, Collis P. Huntington, and others, were among the noble array to be found on Gould's board of directors, a notable lot, many or all of whom had pursued careers more or less parallel in Gould's. A sophisticated confraternity they, compri they comprised, fully and finally capable of understanding one another. But then he also, at the same time, he says, uh, when a credulous man such as Cyrus W. Field, the originator of the submarine cable, stepped along with his confiding faith in Gould's friendship, spoliation and ruin were easy accomplishments. <laughs> Field was simple enough to believe in Gould, only after Gould had mercilessly squeezed his wealth out of him and had turned him adrift a bankrupt, did Field, too late, begin to realize that friendship had no place in the competitive whirly gig. Field had little reason to whine over his misfortunes. The wealth that Gould tore from him was the product of a series of frauds in the results of which he was very willing to share. I just want to note there, kind of interestingly, they talk about the board of directors of Western Union. I've been do doing a little digging around that board uh, last year. I think when we were doing the earlier hot gaffes. And I think mm -hmm. I identified that there were a couple interesting individuals, I think in like 1903, that were on the board of Western Union, including, if I recall correctly, Richard Bissell Sr., who oh, the, the father of Richard, Richard Bissell Jr. of CIA, Bay of Pigs, maybe JFK assassination fame. Hmm. Yeah, so I don't know what... Uh, that's just kind of... Uh, and he was also, by the way, I think the president, the father was, of the Hartford Fire Insurance Company. I think at the same at the very same time. And 
we'll get to that. They don't really come up. But actually, insurance companies do come up in this book in a, a very interesting way. It finally explains a little bit about like what the hell they're up to. Like, why are these insurance companies all so sus and like run by blue bloods and et cetera, et cetera. It turns out because they have a shitload of cash on them at all times. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a Stanford Red That started when a little boy named Leland did drop dead Jane and Leland Stanford knew that their son was no fool And in his honor they would start a California school A California school The academics would be tough, the athletics number one Go! As prestigious as Harvard. But a hell of a lot more fun, and we'll have fun, fun, fun till our daddy's take tuition away. Fun till our daddy's take tuition. One, two, three. The school was built across the Because it also, I think, ties into the whole Elon Muskiness of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, let's see. I wrote it down as Gould Psyops. <laughs> <laughs> let's see. Blah, blah, blah. Okay. So talked about, you know, his his manor at uh, Irvington on the Hudson where he sequestered himself in a great and costly mansion. Surrounded by 500 acres, attached to it, one of the finest conservatories in the world, and had a massive somber brownstone house on Fifth Avenue and 47th in New York, the very heart of the aristocratic section. He, however, had other mighty powers not evidenced in outward display. For some years, he owned a newspaper, The New York World, a curious sight it was to see one of the great pirates, who many a time had narrowly escaped prison, instructing the public as to its duty, moral, political, and otherwise. But the known fact that Gould owned this newspaper helped to discount its utterances and reduce its circulation. But this, a much more successful and insidious method of influencing public opinion, was by his control of the Western Union Telegraph Company and through that corporation of the Associated Press, the foremost news distributing agency in the U.S., Distorted, misleading, or false news dispatches were manufactured or artfully colored and supplied to the public press. These not only gave Gould superior underhand facilities for influencing the course of the stock market, but they were also used in favor of capitalists and against labor and radical movements at every opportunity. The public was fed on grossly perverted news accounts of strikes and labor and political movements. Upon this fabricated news, the newspaper owners, themselves capitalists or largely servile to capital, 
based hostile, if not malevolent, editorials, and the combination of the whole was used to prejudice the mass of the public against any movement or agitation threatening the complete sway of capital. Well, if that <laughs> if that ain't nothing new, I don't know what is. Yeah. Like, basically, if you think of Western Union as basically Twitter and the prevalence <laughs> of distorted, misleading, or false news dispatches that are manufactured on that platform. And, uh, and also, I mean, even look at how Elon Musk uses Twitter. He kind of yeah. has a more, uh, a more direct way of like imposing, but of course there's all these sort of subterranean ways that Twitter influences things with its algorithms and its warnings about yes. disinformation and all this other shit. So it's like, it's the same yeah, kind of tool and tactic, just it's way more complex now. It's so interesting. Yeah, I, I assume you saw that clip of, like, Mia Brzezinski uh, saying, like, uh, okay. you know, he control what people think, uh, and that's our job, <laughs> right? Like... Uh, the daughter of Brzezinski would know. Yeah, that, exactly. Yeah. But, I mean, it was so funny, but it's true. It's interesting that, like, you know, there really is, like, this, you know, Twitter is something that is, like, so, I mean it almost has like a veneer of triviality to it. Like, and even in, it's even baked into the name itself, you know, that it's like, Oh, it's Twitter, you know, it's, it's uh, just Twitter chatter. It's meaningless, you know, mm -hmm. like, but you, I mean, we've seen like how cable news, like, you know, has like totally been captured by Twitter in so many ways. Like, I remember, know. do you remember watching like CNN or MSNBC like years ago in like the early Obama era? Cause I, I was just thinking about this the other day. How, I think when I was still living in New York, like watching it and noticing for the first time that CNN people would just constantly be like, well, let's see what Twitter has to say about all this yeah. and just go and start, and just start reading tweets. And like we forget now that that almost was like surprising and laughable in like 2009 or 2010 well, when... I knew yeah. what Twitter was, but it was still it was a place where like comedians just like make pedo jokes like, <laughs> you know, and like yes. it wasn't considered very serious. But then suddenly I think it was really like the the green revolution in Iran that in the inauguration of like the Twitter revolution that suddenly made it an important place to like. Yeah, capture it's people's funny. I think actually or, at that time I was sus alert, sus alert. I was an intern like at CNN. Um, but not actually that. at CNN, I, at HLN, I worked on like, <laughs> you know, it was just like something that like, you know, you like have to have an internship, blah, blah, blah. Like you gotta, blah, blah, blah. like, you, you know, I, I was going to do be in media or something. It was like a stupid thing, you know, literally just like logged B roll of people like eating and shit. And I worked out on like literally like the dumbest show in the world. What, what's the name of that? It wasn't Janine Pirro, but it was like, it was Nancy Grace. It was a knockoff Nancy Grace. Uh, oh it was someone like that that I wore it was she was like a knockoff Nancy Grace who was also on HLN and like that was also the summer that I think it was the summer of the Green Revolution but I think it was also the summer that Michael Jackson died and so oh. it was just endless Michael Jackson shit yeah. for a long time while I was uh working there uh what was that I really don't even remember the name of the woman I don't that either. I worked for HLN uh yeah, uh, Gabby Petito. I think that was it. No, Gabby, Gabby Petito is the girl who got murdered in like Utah. Oh, that's what came up when uh, I typed <laughs> HLNGA. I think it was something with a GA. What? Anyway, Gale whatever. Something. Gail. Um, uh, 
Who knows? Uh, no, I don't think so. But anyway, um, I'll, I guess I'll never remember. I could find out, but it would take me a while to like look it up. But anyway, so <laughs> but what it, what I was going to say that was relevant was like, uh, you know, we went to like this orientation like for all the interns, which was so funny because like one of the things that sticks out to me about it was that like they played like this like sort of uh, triumphant montage of CNN's greatest moments. And it was like all the worst moments of like the last decade. Like it was like literally like nine <laughs> eleven. Like do do do. Like you know, like literally like it was like a picture of it was like a video of like the planes crashing in twin towers with like, this soaring music of like you know oh how like they reported. I was like, are you kidding me? But uh, during that orientation, like someone like you know one of these like busybodies like who were most of the people who were like they hated me there. You know, for the record, like they absolutely despised me, and I fell asleep all the time. You know, just I remember you just, saying it was like dead. That's all I remember. You were like, this is like a dead company. Like yeah, you, <laughs> it was. All I remember you saying. Someone like, uh, you know, stood up like, you know, one of these busybody interns stood up at that orientation was like, you know, how are you going to integrate? You know, are you thinking about integrating Twitter? You know, uh, and they like were weirdly like resistant. They were like, you know, yeah, it's interesting, but we kind of don't want to do it like for its own sake. You know, we maybe could integrate it when it was like if it was, you know, really serve what we were doing. But, you know, but that seems to have wow. gone totally out the window yeah, because the doing window. it for its own sake is. Yeah, exactly. So, like, it's amazing how, yeah, that was kind of, yeah, right. That sort of inflection point And it just completely got subverted. Well, if you um, think about it, it basically became kind of like the wire service for kind of everything. Like it, on top of being a kind of public square for like discourse, like it became the equivalent of the Western Union where news organizations will like publish. I mean, sometimes they'll publish things, you know, or journalists certainly will. They'll publish things like in real time or like they'll break things on Twitter. And then... <clears throat> it really is still kind of the easiest place to go to find news links like as they're happening. So when you think about like the, uh, like the manipulation of breaking news, right. Which also yeah. is something that's like that's CNN's bread and butter kind of. And so they kind of got into bed with Twitter mm-hmm. in the kind of breaking news business. But that was yeah, also something everyone that Jay becomes Gould, a citizen journalist, you know, like a journalist on the ground. Um, I mean, just yeah. like any uh, pissant like newspaper that's actually controlled by Jay Gould can well, push yeah. something out. Remember that uh, or that Aaron Sorkin show? Uh, we talked about it before. The newsroom, like, oh, yeah, the, uh, yeah like, uh, and part of like the grand finale. You know, this is like our big hate watch, like of the time. You know, and I it remember was. like. And there's just so many hilarious things about it, like the just like the sentiment and like the ideology underneath that show is like so singularly like repugnant. But one of the things that was interesting was like towards the end, you know, it was all about like how great cable news anchors like and cable news like workers are and how heroic they are. And like yes. in the, you know, the sort of final arc, like the, you know, the apocalyptic uh, ending storyline was all about like them being taken over by like people who like made like, you know, who, who made but who cared about Twitter and like wanted people to use hashtags and things. And it's like this sort of battle. Yeah. But I mean, they basically lost and have, yeah. So it's amazing. Yeah. And well, they uh, got completely subsumed by Twitter because for four yeah. years, like their entire like programming was centered around like, what did Donald Trump tweet today? True. And let's yeah. just like get mad about it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> yes. 
and <laughs> it totally like consumed them over time, as it has many journalists. I would I would say for sure uh, yes. ruin their brains perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, and the fact that it's like restrained to a certain number of characters per tweet and like. The whole idea, like the micro, it's so bizarre and odd. Like when you first hear about it, of course, now it's completely naturalized to us. But yeah, I mean, it is uh, interesting. Yeah. Um, and Just like, uh, I mean, I'm sure it did, did not a telegram have, a, a, you know, a very pithy word requirement, right? Wasn't it yeah, always like, hello, like, I am coming, stop, like, we'll yeah, see you soon, true. stop, yes, exactly. love, stop. Like, you know, yeah. like, it was like, you'd only get, like, two lines. So, in a way, it's kind of echoing back to, like, the, the telegraph era, the original right. mass communication tool, even before the phone. And you could think of railroads as a kind of infrastructure of material, like a physical you know, networked infrastructure like the internet in a lot of ways. It's like multinodal, you know, it's like it wasn't all built by like the same person, but then they connect to each other. And then, you know, railroads would fail all the time, but like then they could be like subsumed by others. So there's a lot of uh, interesting synchronicities with like the industries of the 19th, the transformative like technological industries of the 19th century and like where we are right now. But Speaking to that, or really to kind of like the transitions within the system, there's a little quote here that I think captures it well. Um, Page 92, the struggle for survival. After he describes uh, Gould's uh, children all marrying like the Countess de Castellan and uh, the Prince de Sagan, then he died in 1892. Uh, But under this section, the struggle for survival. To lay too much stress upon the social aspirations and doings of the Gould family would obscure the titanic industrial conflict in which they have been engaged. After Jay Gould's death, the wealth and possessions of the family greatly increased and its conquests were extended. But this process has not been allowed to continue unrestricted. The last few years, as we've already pointed out, have ushered in a terrific contest for the exclusive mastery of the nation's resources. Looking back 50 years, we see a large number of petty, consequential industrial bosses, each running his own little railroad or factory. A change then takes place. Great, energetic capitalists develop, who make war upon the petty bosses, and by fair means or foul, crush them, seize their properties, and consolidate these into great systems. The petty railroad owners disappear, and their places are taken by such overbearing magnets as the Vanderbilts, the Goulds, Huntington, Morgan, Hill, and the like. Ten years ago, all of these men were magnates of colossal power, each heading some great system and despotically dictating over some particular domain. Now another stage in the process of industrial evolution is being reached, which signifies the decline of overlords of the Gould type and which foretells the approaching climax of capitalist institutions. Eh. Mighty as these magnates have been, they are gradually and inexorably being subordinated by a still mightier power, the most puissant of all, The aim of this all-pervading power is industrial absolutism, and in the pursuance of this inevitable end, it is grinding down all opposition, even as the Goulds, the Vanderbilts, and others have squelched lesser magnates heretofore. No longer are the Goulds able to extend their power much. The climacteric period has arrived when they have to fight hard to retain what they have. This supreme power, clutching at every form of the production and distribution of products, is the Standard Oil Company headed by the Rockefellers. Now, this is kind of the only thing he like says about Standard Oil. Maybe I'll just read it. 35 years ago, it obtained a monopoly of oil products by getting secret railroad rates and by other crushing methods. 
At first, it ingratiatingly approached the railroad magnates as a supplicant seeking favors. Soon, as a matter of policy, it made these magnates sharers in its profits. Then it began to buy its way into the ownership of railroads. Its profits have been so fabulously vast that it has been under the constant, unescapable necessity of reinvesting its vast surplus, ever growing faster. This surplus it has applied to buying up railroads, bank, mine, public utility, and industrial stocks and securities of all descriptions. With this fixed, unchanging policy, its power grew to such an extent that its members began to push themselves in as directors of a great variety of corporations. For a period, it then carried on a policy of having, quote, a community of interest with the large magnates in every field, of working in cooperation with them in determining industrial matters. But during all this time, it was encroachingly buying more and more stocks of all kinds, so that now it has arrived at the point where, operating through such generals as the lately departed E.H. Harriman, it is gradually forcing the Vanderbilts, the Goulds, and other first-rank magnates of a decade ago to a secondary place and entrenching itself in autocratic authority. Several of the railroads long ruled over by the Goulds have become, to a considerable extent, standard oil adjuncts. So, very tantalizing, and I think they really are. They become the big dog in the game by the time he's writing this. But he doesn't, I don't know, he just doesn't write a section about Standard Oil, which is uh, unfortunate because I'm sure if we dig hard enough, we could find some good books about Rockefeller and Standard Oil that aren't like simping hagiographies. <laughs> yeah. But if Probably you look at, at this like, point, yeah. if, if you type in, I did, I made the mistake of doing this, maybe not a mistake, but I went on YouTube and I, I just wanted to see if there was <laughs> any kind of like documentary that could like, give a nice little overview, a mainstream overview of like JP Morgan or Rockefeller. And it's like, it's surprisingly, it really is. The space is flooded with just these like pathetic history channel, like boomer, like the men who built America kind of documentaries. And I feel like you have to hack through or it's like James Corbett or like some kind of a libertarian conspiracy theorist who, he, I, I think he did a good thing on like Rockefeller and like the oil origins and shit. But I watched a, I think it was like a '90s J.P. Morgan History Channel documentary. Hmm, right? Uh, what, yeah, I watched we'll, a little we'll, bit of it. Yeah. We get to J.P. Morgan. It uh, seemed we'll, like something we'll that would be like on the wall of like the J.P. Morgan Museum, like just playing absolutely. in the background, like or oh, yeah, if there was absolutely. a J.P. Morgan like Disney Channel or Disney World ride you would like have to watch that while you were lining up to ride like JP Morgan's wild ride or something like that's or if like the plutocrats yeah. like it like in their sickest fantasies like kidnapped Gustavus Myers and like chained him in a room and like taped his eyelids open and like made him watch <laughs> this he would like turn into the Unabomber like yeah he would stick to the plan and like go insane uh watching <laughs> the, thank god he did not live to see any of these history channel documentaries um but yeah, so but we'll get to that with uh with JP Morgan. I guess moving on to that, like uh, this this theme will emerge dominant. This one of like standardization and like rationalization and the end of anarchic robber baron competition. Kind of the the type that was personified by Gould. Though like the thieving would continue, but the kind of open competitiveness I think people, certain people realize had to go at a certain point. But mm -hmm. the next section in, in the book is about the Blair and Garrett fortunes. Did you want to mention a few things about that? 
Oh, yeah. I thought there, I mean, there's some interesting things in that chapter. I mean, Blair and Garrett are also, like, kind of uh, obscure, like, railroad tycoons uh, who were uh, less known. James Blair, I think, was the, oh, no. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. Uh, uh, John Blair. John John, Blair. John yeah. I. Blair and DeWitt C. Blair, his son, um, yes. who, pl- according to Myers, plundered Iowa, uh, plundered and corrupted <laughs> Iowa, <laughs> um, right. scooped up most of the land and bribed a ton of people let me see yeah john um, garrett was the was garrett yeah there's consensus into one chapter on the james and or on the blair and garrett fortune uh so they were both johns i guess yeah there, yeah, yeah there, there was there's a, a good section here actually that seems very relevant about how outright bribery you know, even though it was basically rampant, while that was very common, over time, like the direct thing of, I think we had the story of Jay Gould like rushing to Albany with like a carriage full of money bags. Yeah. And then just like giving it out. Um, instead of that, you had a, a somewhat less crude, finer, and more insidious systems of bribery that were generally substituted. Myers says the Western magnates began to follow the advice of that eastern magnate who declared that it was easier to elect than to buy a legislature. So I think in 1895, the governor of Iowa, William Larrabee, he said about the way corruption, uh, the new system of corruption worked, he said outright bribery, he wrote with a long and keen knowledge of the facts, I guess because he was corrupt, (laughs) uh, is probably the means least often employed by corporations to carry their measures. It is the policy of the political corruption committees of corporations to ascertain the weaknesses and wants of every man whose services they are likely to need and to attack him if his surrender should be essential to their victory at its weakest point. Men with political ambition are encouraged to aspire to preferment and are assured of corporate support to bring it about. Briefless lawyers are promised corporate business or salaried attorneyships. Those in financial straits are accommodated with loans. Vain men are flattered and given newspaper notoriety. Others are given passes for their families and friends. Shippers are given advantages and rates over their competitors. The idea is that every legislator shall receive for his vote and influence some compensation which combines the maximum of desirability to him with the minimum of violence to his self-respect. The lobby, which represents the railroad companies at legislative sessions, is usually the largest, the most sagacious, and the most unscrupulous of all. In extreme cases, influential constituents of doubtful members are sent for at the last moment to labor with their representatives and to assure them that the sentiment of their districts is in favor of the measure advocated by the railroads. Telegrams pour in upon the unsuspecting member, probably like fake written by Gould, uh, to fake telegrams pour in, Um, like the tweet bots, like uh, started dragging you. Petitions in favor of the proposed measure are also hastily circulated among the more unsophisticated constituents of members sensitive to public opinion and are then presented to them as an unmistakable indication of the popular will. Another right. powerful reinforcement of the railroad lobby is not infrequently a subsidized press and its correspondence. Well, there you go. Um, yeah. So just like the pharma companies, like every commercial yeah. on and cable news. And it's what the people like, want. They're, yep. You know, the working class all believe in this. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is what they Sign support. the petition yeah. at change.org. Uh, yeah, yeah. Just basically like telegram. Like now they mean messages from the telegram app pour in upon the yeah, unsuspecting exactly. members accusing them of being adrenochrome drinking global. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> for yeah. supporting attacks. Like, uh, yeah, basically. So I guess one eighth of the entire 
domain of the richly fertile state of Iowa was granted to railroads, most of which Blair owned. He, I guess he robbed a lot of people by... He had construction companies and also was a railroad man, so he'd get money from the government and then he would overpay his own construction company. But it's amazing. Myers kind of notes in this, like how little railroad actually got built in this entire yeah, process. All, like it wasn't just a little grift on the side. Fall into ruin. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. This is a real dynamic of capitalism of like the little like controlled demolition aspect of capitalism. Yeah. I guess like what was it called? Like disaster capitalism. But it really just is right. a feature of capitalism that mm-hmm. it's like it involves creation and destruction. You know, right. it's very Gnostic in that way. And, mm-hmm. you know, owning a company like I think the common layperson assumes that like if you own the stock of a company or you own a company, you want it to like to do well. Yeah. Do like or the, you want the railroad as well as possible to work if you yeah. own a railroad. Like but. it's common sense in our system that like, you know, if a man works hard and provides a better product, then more people are going to use it. And it's like this moral like framework that is gr- like pasted yeah. on to capitalism that actually capitalism does not have. Capitalism would be a lot less objectionable if it actually like did operate according to that dynamic of like companies that engage in evil behavior like suffer in the marketplace. But like that's clearly not the case. In fact, the companies probably wouldn't do bad things if it didn't make their companies do better. But of course, sometimes they don't even want their companies to do better because their interests are their own, not the company. When you get to this level, and this is part of what like Myers says the middle class was increasingly pissed off about as you got later into like the Gilded Age and provided certain fuel for like the progressive movement, though he also calls out the middle class for being selfish assholes who like side with the bourgeoisie every time like workers' rights are, you know, agitated for, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And they kind of like yeah. got what was coming <laughs> a little bit. But yes. nonetheless, he does point at the, like they were despoiled significantly by a lot of these changes by these robber barons, uh, just these capitalists. And like so many times, I also got major like GameStop, like NFT crypto vibes from a lot of this because it would talk about Every time there's like, oh, like everyone's soy faces, there's like a new railroad stock out. Like, oh, get in here. You got to buy it. And then all these like middle class people, because they were the people they could afford to play in the stock market, would like flood in. And then through like stock watering and all these other weird arcane fucking moves, like they would tank the fucking stock and like all the little people would fucking yeah. lose all their money and they would run out with a profit. Like, like that was so common and was happening like again and again. And every time yeah, we talked about some kind there, like I think Gould did some kind of crazy scheme like that, that we talked about in hot gaff uh, too. But yeah, I mean, part of it also is that like they get money from the government to do these projects, you know, speaking of yeah. Elon Musk, it's kind of like, I mean, doesn't uh-huh. he get money from the government to do Tesla and like to do SpaceX and shit like that? He definitely gets and it from then, SpaceX. I think his biggest yeah. customer at, at SpaceX is like the Department of Defense because yeah. they, they hire him to shoot their satellites up into space. I mean, Theranos is really the same situation, <laughs> like where a bunch of people who literally were like in the DOD, like in many respects, like, you know, former yeah. like statesman, George Schultz and shit like that, like, you Mattis. know, where yeah mattis were uh sponsoring this thing helping it get uh you know uh helping seem respectable and then like most like certainly the money didn't go to developing like a, a, ma- a magical blood test or something it went to nope. 
like enriching Elizabeth Holmes and like, you know, the people who worked with her. Um, I think all of these unicorn Silicon Valley companies are in a way like a throwback to this era of like fake ass railroad companies. And yeah, like it really companies. is. It's the same shit where like they the magical blood test device they built was the same thing as like a like a, he Myers describes one of the railroads that Sage, I guess, built. Uh, he says um, Sage and others after getting out of the road, all the plunder they could see in sight had retired to use the proceeds of that piracy in repeating their transactions in other directions. The railroad itself was in deplorably bad shape, thoroughly disorganized, and very dangerous to travel on. It had little equipment and few stations or depots worth considering. So, yeah, same thing. Like, the actual, like, service that they're supposed to be providing is literally, like, a danger. They quoted a shocking number of how many people died. Like, how many railroad employees fucking died over the course of, like, 20 years? I think... I don't know where I have it written down. I think it was about... 55,000 people died <laughs> yeah in like 20 years i don't know what that breaks that to like per what is that like that's like several hundred people a year at least dying right that's 2750 people a year roughly were uh, of railroad employees and i guess occasionally also like passengers when the trains would get derailed and shit like that uh and then like hundreds of thousands of people were maimed seriously over that same period Mm. and kind of nothing was done ever to yeah like a lot of these train lines like fucking sucked like they were really shitty so the idea that like oh like personal incentive uh incentivizes the businessman to like make the best product no bullshit it actually incentivizes them to make it as shitty as possible because they have some other weird usurious money scheme that they're running that like has nothing to do with the quality of the fucking right even though yeah in fact like contra indicated like in many cases yeah yeah and they psyoped everybody into thinking public ownership was bad even though that was like the most sensible thing and the public money is what fucking funded the railroad in the first place Ugh, like it just makes you kind of angry this is like a really mm. uh, uh this is like a really egregious example of that actually that uh is in the blair and garrett chapter that deals with um actually someone who came up recently uh the sort of uh, johns hopkins right the, oh uh, the hopkins eminent man. johns yeah. hopkins yeah hopkins you know how did he uh, make his fortune i wonder right so this is just an interesting part that kind of you know i'll start here because it kind of goes to this whole area but this is uh kind of about blair's self-portrayal as like this great philanthropist which is something hopkins also would do obviously because we know his name from all these hospitals and universities but uh, although Seriously. incurably stingy in personal expenditures, the meanest of men, Blair donated just enough money to procure the award of being an extremely pious philanthropist. He founded 100 churches in the West. He established a Presbyterian Academy at a cost of uh, $1,500,000. Uh, sorry, not 500000 Doesn't make any sense. $150,000 and gave several hundred thousand more dollars to the Presbyterian Church. But what were the effects of his frauds and repressions and those of his successors upon the people to whom he so devoutly contributed pulpits and gospels? Writing of the Iowa Railroads, Dr. Frank H. Dixon, a conservative writer, says... The roads had it in their power to make and unmake cities, to destroy the businesses of individuals, to force their removal to favored points. The people were quickly up in arms against this policy. The flame of opposition was fanned by the bitter feelings aroused through absentee ownership, so prevalent in the western states at this time. A well-settled conviction possessed by the people that the owners of capital, directing their operation in absentia and through intermediaries, limited their interest in western affairs to the amount of dividends which they could squeeze from the shippers. And of course... 
the large amount of watered stock upon which these dividends had to be paid were issued to cover the gigantic frauds of the railroad constructors and of succeeding groups of manipulators. This, in outline, was the course of Blair, so eminent and exalted a capitalist. Here's the elucidation of the fine textures of his quote-unquote rare business instincts, and knowing it, the mystery of where his 60 or 90 millions came from is quite apparent, if not entirely clear. What Blair and others were doing in the North and West before, during, and after the Civil War, John W. Garrett and Johns Hopkins were doing in Maryland. Scarcely referred to now, Garrett was extolled in his day as a quote-unquote famous railroad king. And in this case, it is not the man so much, nor Ga the Garrett fortune which commands interest as the story of the railway line that he and Hopkins largely owned. This property forms today one of the great transportation systems of the country. Uh, the Baltimore on the Ohio, built by public money, is the name mm, of the next chapter. Yeah, there you go. Built by public money. So Garrett and Hopkins get control. Plundered by the original clique, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad went into financial ruin. Notwithstanding the great bounties that it had received, it was in a demoralized condition in 1856, and its treasury was empty. Garrett and Hopkins, who long had been associated with it and who had probably shared in the loot, although there is no specific proof on this point, bought up more quantities of its stock, then selling cheap and snatched control. Born in Baltimore in 1820, uh, Garrett was the son of a rich shipping merchant. Hopkins had made money in the grocery business. What is it with grocers? What are those grocers? these fucking yeah. grocers? Uh, yeah, uh, Sage was a grocer too. Yeah, there's nothing like groceries, I guess. Yeah. A humble, mm. a humble grocer. Yes. You, you know, mm. I don't know what that. But I guess if you were a grocer's clerk, you learned a lot of tricks for like being like just a seller and like a talker. And stuff like that. Like, you learn how to, like, hustle people, I guess. Some clerks, you know, not all clerks. But yeah, <laughs> that, was, that was something Myers noted, that if you're a young hustler, that was, a, like, a natural place to start. Yeah, anyways, so this yeah. gets pretty intense as it goes on. So, Garrett and Hopkins not only continue with long prevailing frauds, but put through many other fraudulent and corrupt acts. Here, for example, is one of the smaller frauds. The millions of stock subscriptions donated by the state of Maryland for the building of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad had been, to a large extent, floated in London among British capitalists. The interest had to be paid by Maryland to these financiers in gold. Did the company on its part reimburse the state in coin? By no means. It claimed, by force of certain judicial decisions, that it was not required to pay interest to the state otherwise than in currency. Under the prevailing money conditions and estimating the difference in rates of exchange, this form of payment meant a constant loss to the state of Maryland, a loss reaching more than a total of 400000 of which the amount of which amount the Baltimore and Ohio cheated the state. Far greater were the amounts of which the state of Maryland was cheated in the fraudulent manipulation of what was called the Washington branch of the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. In return for franchises and aid, the company agreed to pay the state one-fifth of the passenger receipts. And after the branch was a successful operation, the treasury was constantly represented as so sickly that there was no money in hand with which to pay the state. Time after time, inquiries were made by honest legislators as to where the great profits had gone. No satisfactory answer was ever given. The state was absolutely cheated. And finally, a corrupt act was passed, practically abandoning all of the state's claims. Under Garrett and Hopkins' control, the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad Company caused a series of measures to be passed exceeding in corruption, and in some respects, those put through by Commodore Vanderbilt in New York, uh, exceeding them in corruption in some ways. Repeatedly, the legislatures of Maryland, Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and other states, and these common councils of many cities were bought up, and, in courts, and the courts were thoroughly subverted. Franchises of inestimable value were given away. The public treasury was cheated out of the sums advanced and was drawn upon to pay the expensive improvements. Large stock watering issues were authorized and the company was virtually relieved from that taxation. By 1876, fully, wow, 
88 million of its property went untaxed. The militant object of Garrett and Hopkins was the destruction of the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal as a competitor. As Commodore Vanderbilt in New York had, had found the Erie Canal to be a competitor of his lines, so Garrett and Hopkins decided that they could not get a monopoly of transportation in Maryland until the Chesapeake and Ohio Canal had been extinguished as a competitor. The obstacles in their way were great, for the state of Maryland had expended many millions of public money in the construction of the canal, and owed it, and owned it, and the public was not disposed to see its usefulness impaired. This was especially true of the merchant class, which demanded competition and insisted the monopoly would be ruinous. Here's kind of an example of what you're talking about, the sort of lesser capitalists, like, being, uh, you know, like, truly crushed underfoot in this next section here, Yeah. Uh, in addition to the working people. Beginning in 1860, Garrett and Hopkins corrupted the Maryland legislature until by one act piled upon another, they were gradually able to wrest away its ownership from the state. But they did not merely uh, depend upon the bribing of legislators after they were in office. With money supplied by Garrett and Hopkins, the political bosses of Maryland engaged in packing of primaries, indiscriminate bribery of voters, and stuffing of ballot boxes, thus ensuring the election of subservient officials. Once the canal was practically in their hands, Garrett and Hopkins made it useless as a competitor. Having a complete monopoly, they now exacted extortionate charges for transportation, and they likewise increased their profits by cutting the pay of their employees. In desperation, the railroad workers declared a strike in 1877. False reports of the violence of the strikers were immediately dispatched broadcast. Using these charges as a pretext, the military was called out. At Martinsburg, West Virginia, the state militia refused to fire upon the strikers, but a company of militia recruited from a class hostile to the strikers opened fire, killing many of the strikers and wounding others awesome just yeah. false flagging and psyoping people yeah they the were literally psyoping the forming a militia to murder a bunch of strikers that um, was the great railroad strike of 1877 we'll return to that one day very uh seminal event but my god and you know yeah. just like destroying a perfectly good canal for no fucking reason except their you know their own greed you know it's ironic because then the railroads that eventually totally get trashed like once automobiles came around uh, and the well, capitalists had I mean, a new it kind of makes sense because they always sucked so much on purpose <laughs> i guess you're <laughs> you right know, they were like, so yeah. fucking dangerous um yeah now like it's yeah it's but like even building a railroad now is like too much now it's like give me a bunch of money to build like a tunnel under the highway for your tesla to go into yeah, and no, like, we can't have quality trains like no. uh, something in America. We probably just, like, can't even have trains it. of the same quality as like they these fools built. Like probably not. Literally not even like a bunch of the most rapacious, maniacal capitalists like of all time. Like they were able to build like transcontinental railroads. But now we can't have that. We just yeah. sacrificing thousands of people to Moloch. Um, uh, yeah. So yes. Johns Hopkins, that serious, uh, you know, yes. philanthropist, uh, died with $10 million, but he probably had more. Um, at the time of his demise in 1873, he was, quote, the wealthiest citizen of Baltimore, the most close-fisted of men. He relaxed in at least one respect during his last year in life. Following the example of so many other multimillionaires of the period, he made certain of the perpetuation of his memory as a, quote, great philanthropist. So, you know, he gave a bunch of money to found a hospital in Baltimore and gave them a park and donated $3.5 million as initial benefaction for the founding of the, John, <clears throat> of the Johns Hopkins University. 
<laughs> right. Wonderful. So he stole a bunch of money and then yeah, and gave it back to like all a, over Maryland. Yeah, exactly. To like a he, sus medical college that did a bunch of MK Ultra experiments and like ran like COVID. They were probably <laughs> you know, like at like a net style. loss in their dealings with Johns Hopkins, but now like his name is plastered all over Maryland and like Yay. He's the ultimate like, hero. Yeah, if you yeah. trust the science, you trust Johns Hopkins. Ooh, yeah. Know, Even though I mean thought. he probably didn't give a shit about like science or like anything like that. Yeah, like he well, just no. yeah. But it's just like you do know notice that i mean not to uh, i think you could probably make a case for almost every single like big university in america being sus but i would say that the ones that bear the names of like 19th century like robber baron capitalists tend to have like a little bit more susness going on because if you think i don't know yeah about, generally, like, i mean like, like vanderbilt yeah, of university of chicago stanford uh, yeah, Stanford, but Johns I mean, Hopkins. the Ivies are sus too, uh, and they tend true. to have like, you know, older, uh, names. No, that's true. But, that's true. Yeah. Like, like yeah. I said, and some of the public universities are sus too, but definitely, like, yeah. uh, which are also, Stan- you know, land Duke grants. is actually yeah. a really funny story. Uh, cause he basically that James B. Duke, who is like a tobacco monopolist. Uh, um. he mentions this like in the ending of the hereditary American fortunes. Like he, basically like said uh, either tr- like they were originally trinity university or of some, you know uh something like okay. that and then he was like you either change your name to duke or i'm just gonna start my own university with this money <laughs> and they're like all right we'll become duke and now he's like the great philanthropist you know duke uh Wonderful. yeah yeah well okay uh, the the last thing i'll read here about this little section there's a funny story here about garrett so he he made out pretty well. He had on paper fifteen million when he died, um, and the wealth descended to his son Robert, who went through a series of personal excesses to wind up in melancholia and softening of the brain. I don't know what that means. Obviously enough, he was no match for those abler capitalists, the Vanderbilt Goulds and Scott. They pounced upon him and ruthlessly despoiled him as his father had despoiled others. His autocratic power and sway had gradually vanished. When he died in 1896, his wealth had shrunk to about $5 million, and the Baltimore and Ohio system had passed under the control of the Pennsylvania Railroad Group of magnates. So that he has a little note here of, I guess, what happened to uh, Robert Garrett. Um, he said a current story frequently published was to this effect that Robert Garrett had secretly consummated negotiations for the purchase of the Philadelphia, Wilmington and Baltimore railroad. And the night before the final arrangements were to be made, he invited a friend to celebrate the occasion when bibulous from champagne, Garrett revealed the secret. The friend excused himself, went immediately to Scott of the Pennsylvania railroad and informed that magnate Scott at once filled a satchel full of bonds and hurried away to make an offer to the capitalists controlling the Philadelphia, Wilmington, and Baltimore, outbid Garrett, and had secured the ownership of that railroad for the Pennsylvania system almost before Garrett had awakened from his drunken stupor. <laughs> so, <laughs> damn, I mean, yeah, he yeah. got took. He got took, dog. Don't they get drunk and tell you fake. Yeah, he's surrounded seems. by fake friends. He's got a soft brain, you know. Yeah, there was that other guy, Field back in the Gould chapter, right? Who also like, that was a guy once again, interestingly, but he got ruined. uh, Yeah. Yeah. Like once again, somebody who actually invented something innovative, like there's (laughs) almost like a sick requirement that That like you you have to produce anything. Yeah. Like you have to, you have to despoil the inventor. Yeah. He yeah. invented the submarine cable, which is a huge I've, thing. Talk about I think the, it was yeah, the I mean, it was the same exact thing with Goodyear and the inventor of vulcanized rubber. I'm forgetting his name, but he also got ripped off by the like 
you know, Mayflower uh, dudes who are like running Goodyear. I think it was Charles Goodyear. Yeah. So that's like a common. And then if you go further, even though the book doesn't discuss it, but things like, you know, Tesla and like J.P. Morgan, you know, there's like a constant theme of like that. I think they kind of secretly hate people that actually invent things. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's just like Silicon Valley too. But yeah, he committed the crime of actually inventing something, and so he had to go. Yeah, um, yeah, that's dangerous. Well, because they ruined man, according to Myers. Uh, at the first I, I... opportunity, the stock market was rigged to the vest field, and he was thrown out to linger and die a ruined man. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Uh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, Google. celebrating yeah. innovation always. Um, yes. Um, okay so i guess you know we should we should move along here the next mm-hmm. chapter chapter six is about uh some people we have talked about a little bit before you know bringing it back to my state the golden state uh this oh, is great. about the pacific quartet yes Crocker so and all them yeah. this is yeah these guys were collis p huntington mentioned earlier leland stanford charles crocker and mark hopkins hmm, yes. son of hob Yes, lots of. He's Hopkins. the least known Hopkins. one of the four, basically. Yeah, is he related to Johns Hopkins? Was he? I don't. Uh, or was he? A oh, I, it. I. That's so weird. I didn't even notice that Johns Hopkins is also Hopkins, and that oh, he's yeah. a goblin kind of. Yeah. Yeah, he's a son goblin. of a goblin. Yeah, and in fact, like you know, his sus hospital was doing like all those kind of, you know, what I mentioned in the goblin episode, like the it features in the that book, the secret life of Henrietta, or sorry, the uh, the immortal life of Henrietta Lacks. Oh. That, like, after she was basically, like, killed through uh, Johns Hopkins, like, negligence, um, mm-hmm. you know, or at least not properly treated due to their negligence and had, like, her cell line stolen. Oh, it was, yeah. like, you know, they t- mentioned, like, these sort of urban myth uh, or, like, urban truth uh, that, like, you know, like, Hopkins, like, you know, they would always say, like, Hopkins is going to get you, you know, if you're, like, if you were out late at night, like, they would get oh, you, like, God. inject you and, like, take you to do experiments on you. They're like, the original, they're, they're the real night doctors. Yeah, exactly. It was basically I mean, a night basically, like, about them. <laughs> the, yeah, night they doctors, are. Uh, rumor that was true about that. <laughs> Probably Oh, my true. God. Yeah. Um, okay, well, um, we're in good company here. So Myers says that this was an unusual brotherhood and that for a long time, these four hung together with a tenacious fidelity not often found among railroad capitalists. In fact, it was so rare a phenomenon that the mention of it deserves a place of supreme precedence. So, you know, I guess like Commodore Vanderbilt and William H. Gould and Sage preferred to go it alone, not merely satisfy the lion's share, but determined to bag it all if they could. And, you know, they had various partners, but very expediently. So the Pacific Quartet were also starkly individualistic, each for himself, but they moderated their propensities enough to fuse their interests in a common harmony of aim. Even more, they sagaciously weighed the special fitness of each, assigned the duties according to this individual appraisement, and divided the spoils with a certain flavor of fairness. So they were like a rock band. You know, everybody had like their specific role. So um, let's see. They were... This group was distinguished by a method of intelligent cooperation. They were among the first of the magnates to prove the superiority of the principle of systematic organization, a lesson which the Standard Oil Group took up a little later, amplified, improved, and developed into a superfine system. 
Here was not a case of where one man dominatingly insisted that he alone was endowed with all the functions required in successful business. The Pacific Quartet recognized the value of specialization. In a general way, Huntington was entrusted with the supervision of the financial affairs, Stanford of the plans for the manipulation of law and politics. <laughs> Crocker was placed in charge of the construction work, and Hopkins was the commandant of office details. Wow, they the were parti- like the Avengers. They, they are like yeah, the Avengers. They each had their yeah. own little role. Yeah. Um, How cool. Uh, yeah, the particular the ulti- useful... I'm assembling a team of like the worst people alive. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so circumstances did not compel these four men to be of quite the same revolutionary type of capitalists as the Vanderbilts and Goulds. They did not have to do much pummeling of smaller capitalists, nor expend much effort in beating down the sacred doctrine of, quote, free and unrestricted competition. Their territory was largely one which had not been taken up by companies of small capitalists building in piecemeal fashion. They had the opportunity of bringing forth great railroad systems out of what had been a void. At a bound, they sprang from an obscure position to that of great capitalists. The transformation from petty dealers in merchandise or law to multimillionaires was a quick, sudden one. Within a few years, they took their place among the industrial dictators of the United States, owners of great railroad and steamship lines and of many other forms of property and an immense domain of land, not less than 30 million acres in all. All of these men have passed away, but the wealth they've become possessed of remains. And so... They really did start, they were pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. I mean, not really, but so just like um, the ancestors of uh, Fidel Castro and Che Guevara, they ventured out west to California Mm -hmm. to get a piece of the gold rush. Right. But they did what I think the old adage about the Wild West was, was, or the gold rush was like the people who made the real money were the ones selling the shovels, right? Mm -hmm. Not the ones digging for gold. So Huntington carried on a hardware and miner supply store in Sacramento, and Hopkins became his partner. Crocker was likewise a small merchant, and Stanford was a lawyer. The four were not able to scrape together a pool of more than an insignificant sum with which to execute what was then considered one of the greatest and most difficult railroad projects of modern times. I guess what he he's clarifying here that like it's not like they're geniuses, like everybody wanted to build a fucking railroad to the Pacific. It's just he says the phrase monger is addicted to rhapsodizing upon the marvelous self-confidence which could initiate a huge railroad line with only a trivial sum as a starter this may be a romantic way of describing their prowess and ingenuity but neither was the project itself of their conception nor did they have to supply the funds years before they took hold of the work as a definite undertaking the building of pacific lines had been agitated and urged and the government had surveyed feasible routes Not one of the quartet knew anything of railroad construction, nor had the least fundamental knowledge of how to equip and operate a railroad. In In what direction then lay their ability? Purely and wholly in the line of promoting... Hmm. again mu- sounds incredibly musk. familiar where yep. it's like oh yeah an amazing idea that i've had like just something that would obviously be amazing to, like yeah. you know yeah like a, 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 an epic bacon hyperloop yeah um, exactly yeah um so yeah an no, electric this is, car yeah it yeah it's like that's um, such a new concept bro yeah like, no one has ever, ever thought of that, that or like what if instead of having to get blood drawn by a needle you could just prick your finger and it would do a million blood tests yeah great oh it sounds good yeah. yeah exactly like what if you didn't have to eat or something you know like give me a bit <laughs> of like a five billion dollars and i'll just pocket that while i like work on my you know thing that will end hunger forever because no one will have to eat anymore like 
Whatever. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, um, yeah. So I've got the vision. I've got the idea. Like I go to Stanford. You know, I don't actually go I, to Stanford. I am Stanford. Uh, I am Stanford. Yeah. Right. Exactly. In this case, <laughs> I am Stanford. Yeah. I yeah. mean, he he did found. It is named after him for a good reason. Um, so Myers says, you know, in what direction then lay their ability? Purely and wholly in the line of promoting. The capitalist system was of such a fantastically inverted nature that to grasp the ownership of anything did not imply or require the ability of supervision. Railroads, factories, mines, and public utility systems were generally owned by men, often by absentees, who knew nothing of any aspect of them except the one all-important phase, the budget of profit or loss. The ability of the promoter was the most necessary consideration, although not the foremost in ensuring the title of ownership. Very frequently, in the case of factories and mines, promoters had to get funds from banking houses, which usually, by skillful law work, succeeded in getting those promoters into a legal snare, forcing them out, and expropriating their property. Railroad promoters, however, did not have to depend so much upon private bankers. And this is it. This kind of syncs up with uh, Gustavus, uh, sorry, uh, Carl Oglesby talking about the cowboy class, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, railroad promoters, however, did not have to depend so much upon private bankers. They could draw upon government, state, and cities for advances of money. If a man or set of men could succeed in bribing Congress and the legislators to donate land grants and advance the funds, it was a very simple matter to hire highly competent civil engineers to survey and build the routes and employ good executives to run them after they were built. The first and prime necessity was the purchase of legislation with its corollaries, franchises, gifts, and free access to the public treasuries. This done, the remainder of the program was easy. In this regard, it was that Huntington and his partners showed their finesse, not an unusual finesse by any means. Its caliber was neither more nor less than that of many other capitalists who had also been adroit in bribing legislation through. So they organized the Central Pacific Railway Company in 1861. Uh, they could only raise about 195000 of which they put in 50000 This sum, ridiculously inadequate to build a railroad estimated to cost $25 million, was, however, enough and more than enough for certain well-understood primary operations. With it, expenses could be defrayed at the centers of legislation, petitions and memorials concocted, advocates paid, and newspapers subsidized. If the trick were well turned, a whole succession of franchises, special laws, land grants, and money subsidies would follow. Thus we see that the original capital needed in many capitalist enterprises was not for the actual prosecution of the work, but for the purpose of bribery. In fact, money, as an absolute requirement, could be dispensed with. For their votes, legislators, being wily, tactful, and practical men, much preferred cash. But when cash could not be fingered, they conveniently took whatever, quote, inducements were offered. We have come across instance after instance in which embryo capitalists organized corporations, rolled off stocks and bonds, which cost the expense of engraving only, and used them, in lieu of cash, as payment for legislative votes. If the average railroad corporation, argued the Pacific Quartet, could so easily, by the simple media of bought laws, annex itself to public treasuries, what could not they do? A far more telling and impressive public argument the Huntington Group had than most of their fellow railroad promoters. Already, quote, in the 50s, Hmm. there was an insistent, genuinely enthusiastic popular demand, reaching almost the proportions of a clamor for railroad connections between coast and coast. Upon the strength of this eagerness, much bounty and booty could be extracted. 
At the outbreak of the Civil War, the demand became irresistibly intensified by the lack of speedy intercoastal communications, both railroad and telegraph. Moreover, the popular imagination was captivated and dazzled by the immensity of the undertaking. With prevailing opinion in so favorably an assenting state, matters could be pliably molded. And the next section is, they get their laws. <laughs> yeah, I love that title. <laughs> they get their laws. Yeah. Uh, it's a really interesting thing to point out, though, about like the development of like a kind of startup, if you will, yeah. which I guess some of these companies were. Or, yeah, where or in other words, like a conspiracy of people. Yes. To, yeah. Um, a conspiracy to create a hype machine yes. that then, if you bribe the right people can actually manifest into like a real company but that's almost like kind of incidental yeah in a lot of cases in this case they did build railroad lines yes but people were ultimately pretty displeased uh with what they did yeah farmers really didn't like yes. it they didn't Even like the these, governors this land of the states were pissed off um well which was then which yeah. was then solved because uh it says right here at the very beginning of the Civil War, the Huntington Group organized the Central Pacific Railroad Company with a capital stock of $8.5 million, nearly the whole of which capital was fictitious so far as actual investment of money was concerned. At once, they directed their energies right to the core of things. Huntington betook himself to Washington to lobby in Congress, while Stanford, elected governor of California, <laughs> busied himself with similar ends at home. No visionaries were they, but practical men who knew how to proceed, proceed straight away. Stanford's work as governor quickly bore fruit in California. The city of Sacramento was authorized to donate $400,000, Placer County to loan $550,000, and the state to hand over $2.1 million. At the same time, Huntington was doing surpassing missionary duty in Congress. An act was passed in 1862. Oh, yeah, that's right. He got himself elected to Congress, by the yeah. way, uh, Huntington. Yeah, so they both like it just entered straight into politics as just an instrument basically to get what they wanted. And so they were able to get, um, wow. An act was passed in 1862 by which 25 million in government, 6% bonds and about 4.5 million acres of public lands were placed at the disposal of the quartet. The few protests against these great gifts were immediately silenced. Is not the government fully protected? The promoters innocently inquired, are not its loans covered by a first mortgage? <laughs> if the company defaults, cannot the government step in and recover? This sounded plausible. Two years later, however, at the very time when, as we have seen, the Union Pacific Coterie were corrupting Congress to get greater land grants and altered laws, Huntington again debauched Congress. An act was passed doubling the Central Pacific's land grant and relevating the government's claim on the Central Pacific to the underposition of a second mortgage. And, as it turned out later, the contract with the government was so deftly drawn that, according to a decision to the Supreme Court of the U.S. subsequently, the government's lien covered the main lines only and not the branch lines. Whether this contract is drawn was a result, was a result of collusion with government officials was never determined. So Bancroft, I don't know who that is, uh, says, Whence came the means by which the four men with only moderate fortunes were enabled to buy, build, own and operate all the roads belonging to the central and southern pacific systems in 1869 before the last spike had been driven at promontory the railroad quartet besides owning the road had received as a loan 24 million of government bonds forming a second mortgage on the road together with 400,000 of san francisco bonds as an unconditional gift 
550000 of county bonds and $2.1 million paid or to be paid by the state of California in return for services to be rendered by the company. The operations of the quartet were simple enough. Once they had obtained the requisite loans and gifts, they threw aside all pretenses and openly and vigorously set out to defraud all <laughs> within reach, not only the federal government, but also states, counties, cities, and investors. Uh, first, they organized a construction company called the Credit and Finance Company. Then they made a contract with themselves to build the Central Pacific. With the aid of the loans given by Sacramento and Placer County, they built enough road to draw 848000 from the government as the subsidy of the first section. By repeating the process, they had the entire road constructed with scarcely the expenditure of a single dollar of their own. I put up my own money. I deserve to benefit. Yeah, fuck you. Hmm. Right? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's what they all say. The next step was to load it down with a capitalization of $139 million, which is the beginning of still more stock inflation. Uh, so the next section is a theft of $50 million. <laughs> I guess that might have been the total of their frauds, was about uh, $50 million, largely through contracts they made with themselves. According to the report uh, of the Pacific Railroad Commission of 1887, the cost of building 1,171 miles of road was about $27 million, but they fraudulently charged three times that sum. Here was a theft of more than 50 millions in one grand haul. In addition to stolen cash, they issued to themselves $33 million in, in bonds and $49 million out of, sto uh, of stock. But these sums were only part of the total thefts. The Pacific Railroad Commission's report goes on to say, Quote, then as directors of the Central Pacific, they took leases of their own lines for the Central Pacific for $3.4 million per annum, which was at the rate of nearly 13%. Fifteen months ago, in 1886, three of these directors, Stanford, Huntington, and Crocker, contracted with themselves to build an extension of 103 miles. In payment, they issued stock to the amount of $8 million and bonds to the amount of $4.5 million, the market value of the stock and bonds being at the time $8.34 million. The actual cost of construction was $3.5 million, so that they personally profited by their own votes by that single transaction to the extent of $4.83 million, etc., etc. So, I mean, you kind of get the idea, right? Mm -hmm. um, they did the same thing with the Southern Pacific Railroad Company. They managed to wrangle basically through bribery and fraud and corruption uh, total control over that line. Um, then another kind of cowboy thing, they the Huntington Group tried to force the eastern capitalists out of the Texas and Pacific Railroad, absorb that line into their own system, and illegally grab the 18 million acre land grant of the Texas uh, and Pacific. So yeah, that land grant itself was uh, fraudulent mm -hmm. and illegal. But so they tried to steal it. So you see a little bit of like beefing between these like new capitalists that sort of rose up out of nowhere and really didn't have like strong social capital or a background beefing with like the Eastern banks, basically the Yankees. Right. Mm -hmm. But I mean, are they really that different at the end of the day? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Right. Um, and they would all be kind of like glommed more or less, I think, into the singular kind of faction eventually. Mm -hmm. So they managed to, I think, turn over to themselves $142 million in all for ostensible construction work and expended at least $5 million for corrupt political purposes. 
They had stupendously watered the stock of their railroads, and with the cumulative proceeds of their thefts had secured control of 19 distinct railway systems and of steamship lines also. They had, by fraud, robbed the government of many millions of acres of land. They had defrauded the government of the bulk of the funds that it advanced. They refused to pay more than the merest nominal taxation, and they extorted onerous rates for transportation. (laughs) This is the general summary of their acts, as set forth in the report of the Pacific Railroads uh, Commission. So, yeah, I guess handing out free passes to ride on the trains was, like, a big thing that Congress people loved. Yeah. Um, Yeah, so they were ripping – they were even ripping off, like, the the consumers, uh, of course. Of course, yeah. Et cetera. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I mean, people originally, like, really wanted this railroad, but afterwards – Myers writes, acclaimed at first as public benefactors, Huntington and his associates were subjected to the fiercest denunciation when the people realized the enormous frauds that they had committed. For the frauds, of which an epitome has been here given, were only a portion of the total. It is hardly necessary to plunge into the torturous mass and maze of detail, how they resorted to nimble subterfuges to escape their obligations, and defrauded the government, how they corrupted and ruled states and territories, and seized holds of one possession after another, and how, through their control of political machinery, they sent representatives and senators to Washington as though they were so many errand boys. The Pacific Quartet were among the first of the magnets to come out into the open and exercise political power directly instead of entrusting it to retainers. To have one of their own members of the United States Senate there to keep alert for their interests, they caused the California legislature in 1887 to elect Stanford to that body. Um, Which is... Yep, he became a senator. Yeah. Pretty cool. And, you know, again, he wasn't elected by the people. He was appointed because this is before, you know, the... The corrupt California legislature, which they effectively control. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, uh, yeah. Yeah, Myers even quotes two two California governors that, like, talked a lot of shit about this as it was going on. But, you know, to no avail. But H.H. Haight of Haight-Ashbury namesake um, and Governor Newton Booth. Um, you know, called them evil, uh, yes. these corporations. But both but of them ultimately did nothing. Yeah, he says the governors yeah. who wrote them with such a display of earnestness were put in power and controlled by the very corporations of which they complained. Pretty but much. People, you know, they had to say that because everyone hated them uh, by the mm-hmm. end. But <laughs> yeah, actually, there's a funny story for, or yeah, perhaps an intriguing story for any paranormal heads uh, who might be listening about Hopkins. It, he actually does kind of mention... Uh, very characteristic of the peculiarities of prevailing society was one of the ways in which Hopkins' millions were used. His widow inherited his wealth and remarried, and part of her inheritance went toward the purchase of an old established New York newspaper. Thus was witnessed in the case of Gould, the newspaper being financed by the proceeds of theft and the inheritance of these proceeds, giving directions as to what should constitute the moral and political pabulum fed out to the public. They also bought like a, you know, splendid country mansion at Great Barrington, Massachusetts. But an interesting fact is that uh, the guy who she married was Edward Searles, who was like a very weird figure. He was like an architect. Yeah, he eventually became really rich himself because he inherited all of her money when she died. And Interesting. she, you know, he wasn't the only person who could have inherited it because she actually had an adopted son. But her will included a clause that was like, all my money goes to Edward Searles. Um, none of it goes to Timothy, my adopted son. And this is not a mistake. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. But 
an interesting thing about that is, uh, you know, for anyone who says that uh, Jin can't have a material effect, according to uh, the Crook Boys, who I guess testified once her will was challenged for excluding her son, Mary became engrossed in the paranormal and often consulted the spirit of their father, Dr. John Crook, her former personal physician, as well as her first husband, Mark. Mary did not query the spirits about small matters, but rather on who should be her next marital partner and who should get her property. This quote-unquote spirits, this is from a blog at genealogybank.com, uh, mm-hmm. the spirits furnish the answers through table tipping and slate writing, a method of written communication from the spirits introduced to Mary by Henry Slate. Uh, the crooks recounted a story of a night in conjuring in Mary's drawing room. Mary, Edward Searles, and Crook, well, the crook, both Crook boys, T- Timothy Hopkins, her son, and others were seated at the seance table and summoned the spirit of Dr. John T. Crook. Mary asked if the Menlo Park property should go to Timothy now or later with the entire estate. One of the crook boys testified. Searles heard the question and quick as a dash, I saw that he wanted a negative answer. Something told me then that Searles had his eye on the widow's estate and did not want Tim Hopkins to grow any closer to his mother. I also knew that if Searles won, he would have no use for me. The answers always came by the table tipping and determined that it should be in favor of Tim. It then became a question of muscle between Searles and myself, but I was too much for him. And though he did his best to hold the table down, I tipped it in spite of him. No sooner had the answer been given than he proposed the seance close for the evening. That's so fucking. They were funny. like battling over tipping the table, like, like battling yeah. over like psyoping her yeah. into thinking that like a spirit told her to like give so and so all of her money when she died. Oh my god! Right? Yeah, a lot of them were superstitious. Yeah, um, she was apparently really into super, into spiritualism and real uh, like Sarah Winchester vibes. Yes, um, and basically another she, Bay Area uh, resident who yeah. Uh, was obsessed with ghosts yeah winchester isn't mentioned in this book but colt is right or is he mentioned in the ending of the hereditary well we'll get to the rifles in a little bit i don't think winchester maybe like winchester rifles but not the the man man winchester at all it kind of odd another odd kind of omission yeah Um, samuel colt was mentioned though right uh i think so rights yeah Um, yeah yeah, there was something about that. It just just to finish up with Stanford. Yeah, you know, after he becomes a stan, after he becomes a senator, you know, he he became a great landed proprietor. Um, had a big ranch in Palo Alto with an extensive breeding establishment and great vineyards, and um, earned a cool income of a million dollars a year just from his stocks and lands. And but then he makes that big flip in 1885. He became a full fledged philanthropist by giving property worth many millions for the establishment of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Thus was another quote seat of learning established to be subjected to the censorship of money. Very cool. So that's where that's where Stanford comes from. Mm-hmm. And. Huntington's name is still very much around L.A. I think there's like the Huntington Art Museum and Library. Yeah. And Crocker, of course. We got Crocker Bank. It is crazy that Stanford is such a hub for like, you know, like Elizabeth Holmes and like all these people to like go and, you know, for the innovation. That's what I'm saying. Like it's in the DNA of the place. Yeah, exactly. Hustle till you make it kind of thing. It's kind of spun like that Elizabeth Holmes, like, you know, to tarnish the name of Stanford, like exploited it and like wasn't a true inventor. But she was very true to the Uh. spirit of you know, Stanford. very on brand. Yeah. Very on brand. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, so, oh yeah, the, also this section, we have to say, uh, they become aristocrats, uh, <laughs> of course. So no intelligent person was unaware of the long and great series of frauds and thefts that <laughs> Huntington, Stanford, Crocker, and Hopkins had plowed through to squeeze their wealth. Yet while severely denounced, they did not have to meet the same taunts and revilings constantly cast at Jay Gould. Essentially, they were of the same stripe as Gould, but Gould was held up to popular maledictions as a railroad wrecker, while criticism of the Huntington group was always tempered with the remark, well, if they stole colossal sums, they at least <laughs> constructed great railways and were big factors in the development of the country. And they had no difficulty in getting instant entree into what was represented as the, quote, best society. No question was raised as to their eligibility. By power of money, they at once became part of the financial aristocracy. Also, by the same power of money, Huntington's adopted daughter entered with ease the fine circle of European-titled aristocracy. She married Prince Hasdfeld in 1889 and received a paternal present of several million dollars. Do we know who Prince Hasdfeld was? Like, he sounds Austro-Hungarian, I would imagine. The Duke of Trackenberg. The German nobleman. Oh, a German, high German nobleman. Yes, um, they love it. Oh, he died in 1933, just before his dreams could come true. Yeah, it's I interesting bet. how there's like, you know, this sort of Dutch patroonship thing. That's another kind of Elon Musk connection. Like, I was reading a little bit about his Pennsylvania Dutch ancestry, like, and his, his oh. father, uh, who, you know, like the one who oh, was... Oh, really? Yeah, the one who was born in, in Minnesota, but then they went to... Um, oh, you mean his grandfather? You uh, no, I think his actual father. Um, oh, yeah, no, his, uh, yeah, his grandfather, Joshua N. Haldeman, yeah, was uh, moved yeah, with his yeah. family to Herbert in southwest Saskatchewan from Pequot, Minnesota uh, when he was four years old. But, yeah, then he packed up his whole family and moved to Pretoria in South Africa. And uh, there's a funny line in this article from the Regina Leader Post about uh, his reasons for moving to South Africa from Canada at okay. that time. Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay, yes. Go, it was, go uh, it. Yeah, it was just after World War II, and uh, he was concerned <laughs> that uh, Canada was becoming uh, too socialist, right? He was, uh, yeah. <laughs> after the Second World War, Haldeman became dissatisfied with Canadian politics, believing the country was becoming too socialist. However, Scott thinks the main reason his father decided to move the family to South Africa was his thirst for adventure. Yeah, all the adventure you can have in uh, apartheid, apartheid South Africa. Yeah. Scott, I guess, who's, you know, one of his other sons, described Haldeman as staunchly anti-Nazi and anti-socialist. He was a very freedom-oriented uh, guy. Sure. He would have made okay. a good American. Eh, unfortunately, he uh, was, like, someone who, like, moved to, wanted to move to Rhodesia. I mean... And, and you know what? The family, the family kind of moved away from South Africa, I think, right around the time like apartheid ended. Yeah. Or like definitely Elon Musk left uh, around the time. I mean, like, because he came here, I think, in the 90s. Yeah. Honestly, like not even too shocking, but uh, or too surprising at yeah. all. Kind of just like a matter of course, but still pretty amusing. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. 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 The German so, uh, so, element. But anyways, yeah, these uh all these guys, they married Prince Hasfeld and, you know, so they linked up with these, uh, like, European nobility as well. Um, and after all four of them died, it was Harriman, really standard, the standard oil oligarchy, Meyer says, acting through Harriman and his banking houses to basically buy out all the Pacific Railroad and steamship lines. And so they bought 
out the Southern Pacific uh, and Central Pacific from uh, Mrs. Huntington, his widow, and thus uh, marked one more aggressive step in the assumption of a centralized ownership of the productive and distributing resources of the United States. Cardinal pride all the way. Do you want to take one more <clears throat> quick break and then yes, hit Morgan? Yes, good. Uh, okay, yeah. Railroad bill, railroad bill, never worked and you never will. Ride, ride, ride.
38 special on a 45 frame How can I miss when I got dizzy? Cure me, but it didn't say, right, right. 